welcome back to the class trial, our limited run, ding and rompa recap, replay, uh, reverse, uh, podcast. Uh, I am Ty, <laughs> and with me, as always, is Ken. How are you, Ken? Oh, just just vibing, just trying to like mentally prepare to talk about this game in particular. Yeah, this one's a lot. Um, I guess speaking of that, we should just say at the top, so this episode is, uh, you'll see it in the title, but we are talking about Ultra Despair Girls, another episode, whatever the order of that title is, I think I said it wrong, um, which has, uh, like, all of these games obviously have content warnings, but I think this one, like, pretty specifically, like, especially if you're gonna Mm -hmm. actually play it, like, there is a lot of stuff about, like, child abuse and, like, children coming to harm and children being both, like, physically and sexually abused. Um, mm. So just just know that. If you have a hard time with, like, bad things happening to kids, which would be a weird thing given this series, but they are, like, children <laughs> children in this. They are, like, yeah. elementary schoolers. Elementary, yeah. Um, yeah, like... This one it might be rough going, so just just mm. putting that out up front. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a lot. So yeah, um, yeah. So this is set technically before, uh, Dang and Rumba Two, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like a midquel, as they call it. Dude, do people call it that? I've heard it called that. That. Uh, a pre-sequel, that's also something. God, okay. Mm. Well. We we come up with fake words for so much different shit in this industry. Well, at any rate, uh, Ultra Despair Girls <laughs> is a, um, a, a, sh- a first-person shooter. Well, it's not a first-person. It's a very tight third-person shooter. Um, yeah. I, I, I was generally, if I try to explain it, it's as a puzzle shooter, because yeah. I think that feels... Most in line with what the actual like moment, yes, moment is. Yes, that is definitely true. Um, um which is it's weird because all the other games are you know visual novels with like exploration mm-hmm. elements. Um, but yeah, so you do a lot more walking around and like controlling the characters in this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, this is the this is the one where you get to be a girl. Yeah, the. I was gonna say, well, there is another time, but that that was fake. <laughs> um, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> um. So this is your first time playing this game all the way through, right? Yes, I've never, ever like not even all the way through. Like I've never played it before. Oh, okay. Um, gotcha, I gotcha, originally gotcha. like when I was doing my first playthroughs of Danganronpa, I like asked my friend who had gotten me into them if I needed to play Ultra Despair Girls, and he told me it was a shooter, and I was like, I really don't want to play that. And he was like, yeah, like, you don't, like, Mm. have to play it to understand, like, everything else. So I was like, okay, I'm just not gonna do it. And Mm -hmm. then I just, like, read a wiki, like, article about it. Uh, And that was forever Mm. ago, so I did not really remember much about it other than that there was kids. Um, Right. And that it was, yeah, Toko and uh, Makoto's sister. Because, plot twist, those are mm. our main characters this time. Yeah. I had, um... I feel like, more than any singular thing in the series, it is the thing that I have the most complicated feelings on. Because when I first played it, which I played it like as it was coming out, um, I was very big on this game. Like, I was just like... this, And this was before Danganronpa 3 was announced. This was before V3 was at all, even a thing. Um... 
And it's because this game felt like it was, at least, like, narratively, something that the series kind of needed to finally reckon with, like, the state of the outside world mm-hmm. and um, the, the fallout of the tragedy. And also, like, properly set up what I, you know, what I thought was going to be, like, the next game, but ended up being the next anime. Uh, and um, so, like, when I finished it back in, like, 2015, I thought it hit on, like, a lot of, like, really important things for me. Um, I kind of appreciated that it wasn't, like, the sort of, I guess, like, I guess what would have been, like, the fan service alternative of, like, this being about, like, the ultimate despair. Um, like, I guess I appreciated that, like, it did not do what seemed to be, like, a very, what, what seemed to have been an easier thing to have done for the game that wasn't going to be about the outside world. Um, when Danganronpa 3 came out, and, like, we'll get to the specifics of that show next time, um, and... The things that this game seemed to be setting up went literally nowhere. Uh, it kind of retroactively made me feel a completely different way about this game, just because like it's what felt like this very core, important story, like th- that was setting up something, just became like a video game long red herring. Is basically what happened. Um, and with that new framing, and as well just like playing it now, like seeing that a lot of this stuff that happens in this game just isn't really, like, there's not a whole lot of purpose to it in the way that it, like, appears initially. I just kind of like it a lot less, and for, and we'll get to all the nuts and bolts of why, but I feel like it does kind of lean into some of Danganronpa's worst tendencies when it comes to writing. Um, and all of those things felt like that a point initially, but now I'm just kind of like, what was, what was the point of all of this? Like, what, what do I feel like I've gained in terms of like an understanding of this world and like this, these themes and these characters? Um, I mean, like it's got an interesting sort of like remix of the hope and despair plot that we'll get to later. But um, yeah, I was just like, this feels like it, it's it's wild. In like one episode of that show, this game becomes a compl- like completely a side story. It, like it, it, it is exactly like exactly as your friend said that like you don't need to play this game. Like, you need to play and experience everything else in the series. See, that's uh, super interesting, because I don't really remember, like, what part you're talking about, because I watched, I mm-hmm. watched Danganronpa 3 without the context of Ultra Despair Girls, so mm-hmm. I cannot remember, like, retroactively, like, now how those pieces fit together, so I'm interested to, like, watch that and then be like, mm-hmm. see those, see those strings come together, because um, right. I agree, like, playing through this, like, I do have a lot of feelings about like the writing and execution of this game but i do think it did a really interesting thing of like like you said you know showing what was going on in the world and also like i normally don't like the concrete like here's what happened after the vague ending but like considering mm. what Danganronpa like one and two do and how they're connected to each other i didn't mind and would say that i honestly kind of liked seeing the moments of Yakuya and Makoto like doing future mm-hmm. foundation shit before what happens in two. Um, right. Like it was, it, it was nice to feel like there was like a, conti- like a, that world was continuous. You know what I mean? Like shit right. was still going on, yeah. which I think is going to feed into like my frustration with B3 down the road, but we'll get there. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, I, and I do think like two is credit, like you're saying, like even in, in talking about the continuation of the world, I feel like, for for what it's worth, I feel like some of the the plot threads of three in terms of like the world's relationship to the future foundation and the future foundation's kind of like inner workings, 
I think if like they do a pretty good job of kind of like setting the stage for that here, even if it's not necessarily relevant to what Kamaru and Toko are doing, mm-hmm. but like in terms of things like like you know the little notes that you find, the sort of like the, basically what we understand the Future Foundation's relationship to the world as it is post the tragedy. Um, I think really worked out well for me, especially like as I was replaying it now because it's just like this is the first time I've played the game in full since three came out, and I was just like, yeah, I see like there is a level of care still being put into most of the things that I think matter in the series, even if it comes, like, if some of the presentations of, and the characters that they're using don't land for me in the same way that almost any of their equivalents in the other games or Dragon Ball 3 do. Yeah. Yeah. Should we... Should we start... Let's get into it. Yeah, should we start this this journey through Toa City? Yeah. Let's um, go. Okay, so we start... Because this is a Danganronpa game, we do start with a prologue. Um, mm. And I see since Ken did not edit my notes here that I must have gotten the prologue correct. Uh, <laughs> so we meet, like, our protagonist, who is Komaro Naegi. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, it's because she is uh, Makoto's little sister. Um, and she basically lets us know that for the past, like, year and a half, basically, she's been trapped inside of an apartment, um, and, like, she just has not been able to leave, and the only contact she has with the outside world is when someone drops food off for her during the day. Um, Mm. and basically, like, she, during the scene that we see in Danganronpa 1, where, like, uh, Makoto watches the video of his house being all torn up and shit, like, this is basically Komaru kind of confirming that because, like, she got kidnapped. She doesn't know what happened to her parents. And she's been mm-hmm. here during the whole time that the tragedy and whatnot has been going on. Um, yeah. So, basically, while she's wandering around, being like, yeah, I I'm, I'm, guess I'm okay with being here, whatever. And then, like, someone tries to open the door. She's like, oh, like, help me, help me, let me out. And then it's a fucking Monokuma uh, breaks her mm. door down. And so she runs away and eventually gets to an elevator where she meets uh, Byakuya Togami and some other rando Future Foundation guys. And Byakuya gives her a megaphone gun that does hacking uh, and basically tells her to run away. And so she does. Uh, And yeah, so you basically just like kind of learn how to use this hacking gun by like running through like a diner and different areas of the city that like are leading to uh, a future foundation helicopter um and like a future foundation guy saves you uh running through the diner and shit like that and there's all these monokumas just going ape shit everywhere um and yeah and so then you finally make it to the helicopter and you meet up with some future foundation people are like hey can you like go save Biakia and also that other guy and they're like yeah we'll do what we can and then uh, you get into the helicopter, but Monokumas show up and they crash the the, the Monokumas. Yeah. And, well, actually, now that I'm looking at it, we did actually forget to mention something in the prologue, which was uh, when we're in the diner, a TV broadcast, like a news broadcast is on, like, talking about oh, the state of the city. Yes. And then uh, there are these five fucking kids that all are, like, playing with the dead body of the anchor and just saying shit about how they're basically going to claim the city for themselves. Yeah, real creepy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then, Komaru is once again kidnapped. 
That is the end of mm. the prologue. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. that's... So far, okay. it's a start, I mean... Like, it is, like, I mean, basically part of the course of what we know of the outside world of this series, and the weird, like, uh, sort of uh, new twist on it being that there are these fucking kids, and they're also, like, a bunch of kids running around the city that have, like, these Monokuma helmets on, and so, like, they, they like, sing creepy songs and, and shit really when talk, Monokuma does shit. they only, like, laugh. Right. They don't, yeah, they don't, they, I don't think there's any dialogue they, like, with any of them. They talk, um, or they laugh, or they'll, like, scream, like, run away. Those are, like, the only words they ever use. Yeah. Um, yeah. weird. And they're all dressed in, like, school uniforms. Mm-hmm, yeah. But this game is very much like, hey, did you think kids were scary before? <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let yeah. us just help you along with that. This game is, like... I know, like, I tend to gravitate more towards the horror tones of this series anyway, but, like, this game is mm-hmm. deeply fucking creepy. Right. Like, like I said, like, really, I, th- I would say that, like, it, yes, it is a puzzle shooter to an extent, but, like, I feel like Ultimate Spare Girls is more or less a horror game when it gets into, like, the nuts and bolts of, like, how it, um, how it works. Mm-hmm. Um... Maybe not as because like this this was initially a video game that got ported up to PC and PS4. So like it's not like the most like visually horrific thing. No. Uh, at least I mean it still looks like Jane like, and Rampa in that like all the blood is pink and stuff. But right. there's a lot of really creepy set pieces mm-hmm. and just like just mega bad vibes throughout. I think this game is kind of, like, the start of the extremely just, like, oppressive bad vibes that I think are, like, very, very prevalent in 3. Um, yeah, I would say, like, honestly, like, I think the t- sort of ter- dark turning point of the series is probably Chapter 0, where you see Nagito's hand is, like, fucked up because he put Jungles on her. Because that's when it's starting to get into, like, the realities of this world, and I feel like the more and more that the, the series is more, like, willing to talk about the things that are outside of the scope of the killing game, like, and it's able to lean into the horror vibes, that is where this shit come, becomes very prevalent. Because, like, there's gonna be... And especially when it is uh, framed through a child's eye, I guess, like, there, there's a point where, like, one of these characters is going to make, like, a whole, like, art piece with corpses and, like, a bunch of this weird... Like, yeah, like you're saying, it's, like, just generally leans harder into the horror than it ever has before. Yeah, and it feels different than, like, the Nagito reveal in that, like, I'm trying to figure out how to explain it well because it's something that, like, I found in B3 as well where it's, like, they do the Nagito reveal but it fits tonally with everything and so you're still, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it's a horrifying reveal and you're like, oh, that's really fucked up. But, like, Nagito is just still weirdly chipper and like you still have the island vibes and everything so it's kind of just like Mm. do you know it like mitigates some of that to a degree and then this game is like not only are we going to really lean into like the reality of the world but we are going to go as like hard into the like Mm. horror tropes of it and also the kind of like gross like glee in being gross to a degree yeah um and it's weird and i feel like the game is kind of in conversation with itself in parts of it about that but then it's really oblivious in other parts right yeah um and we can get into that later but um hey speaking of nagito yes yeah, speaking um, of him um 
that man is back. <laughs> that man is here. Um, Known only as the servant. Yeah, you don't ever see his name, but like it's clearly him. And he's he's yeah. wearing a different outfit though. <laughs> he's wearing like a weird sweater jacket combo. Yeah, I, I I will say like him like seeing him like his design as an ultimate despair. I really fucking dig it. It's like just hot topic enough for me. But, like <laughs> I'm like vibing with it. Um, one of the funny things though, um, when the game was not out yet here in America, um, and I went to like the reveal event for it, and I went talked to uh, Yoshinori Teresawa. Oh. Um, the uh, producer of the series, and I'll like ask him like, "Hey, hey, why did you like? Why is Nagato the character that you uh, chose to bring into this this game?" Uh, he was like, "Oh, is that really Nagato? I don't know." It's like so they were apparently like leaning into like that might be some other fucking person, which is weird to me. Yeah, um, who else would it be? Yeah, like he looks exactly like him. He's got like he's wearing a mitten over, over the, the hand. hand. Yeah, I, they, I guess that that was just like a weird thing. It's like I feel like. Even with, well, except there's, there's one particular scene in this uh, that still, like, grinds my gears to this point. But, um, like, by and large, Danganronpa is relatively grounded. It doesn't do, like, cloning or shit. So, like, I didn't know who they, what they were trying to make me think this person was. But. No, yeah. I mean, it's Nagito. Yeah. Especially because Ultra Despair Girls, like, chron- like, not just in, like, the in-game world, but, like, in our, like, release date. Ultra Despair Girls came out after 2, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, the whole thing with the scene at the very, very end. Of course it's Nagito! Who else would it be? I don't know. Like, maybe they were, at that point, still trying to, like, hide the... I don't know. It's a marketing thing, right? Like, you're, like you're trying to not necessarily spoil... I think, if, like, you talk about the fact that this is Nagito, you have to acknowledge Nagito and Danganronpa 2, who is not revealed to be this person until the very end. So, like, maybe they're just like, oh, that might just be some guy that looks like him. And, you know, some Kingdom Hearts shit. I just, like, ugh. That doesn't, it's not, anyway, it's Nagito. Anyway, yes. It's confirmed he's Nagito, um, (laughs) except they don't ever say his name. Um, But yeah, he does very conspicuously have a mitten over the hand, TM. Um, (laughs) And he basically, like, shows up and starts kind of giving Komaru, like, the exposition of what's happening. In that she is in, like, a weird bedroom, and when she leaves, she has to go through, like, a maze of Monokuma. And if she survives, she gets to meet whoever is holding her captive. Um, Mm -hmm. He also uh, warns her that she should not tell anybody about the gun that Byakuya gave her if she wants to live. Um, mm. so then you... Which, which she has altered for game balance purposes. Oh, yes, that's right. Which means... They make a which lot... Which means shoot to I wanted to comment on this, too. They make a lot of, like, fourth wall-breaking comments yeah. in this game. I think, like, noticeably more than in any of the other ones. Yeah, like, certainly, at least in, in like, the Hope Peak series. It, there's, like, an acknowledgement, that, like, this is a game, and this is, uh... Yeah. And, and, and again, I think that also comes to, like, the framing of, like, these kids doing this thing like they are treating it as a game with scores and points and mm-hmm. uh you know so like part of it is like yeah that is fourth wall breaking but also like kind of fits with the uh sort of way that they are framing it, it feels weird though because it'll be universe. like nagito like grab like takes the gun and is like oh yeah it's game balance and you're like okay like and then that's like <laughs> the double play between like you know actually you are playing a video game and these kids who kidnapped you are playing a game but then, like, Toko right. will say stuff. Like, towards the end, there's a. I distinctly remember that there was, like, a dialogue that she had 
where she was like, oh, well, not with these directors. And it's yeah. like, oh, why? It just... Yeah, and, and then we're, when we're about to go into that, that final room, she, she's like, this just screams final boss. And Yeah. Which, like, that part again, I was like, okay, like, yeah, like, Toko, you know, lives in a world where there are video games. Like, sure. Okay. But some of them, I'm like, why are you doing this? Mm. And, like, I guess it could feed into the stuff that we find out in the later game, but if that's the case, I think it would honestly make me more pissed off. <laughs> I would be surprised if they had even thought that far ahead. Yeah, yet. that's kind of what I also would think. Um, so, Komaru enters the murder labyrinth and uh, survives uh and because of that you get to meet the warriors of hope who are those five kids that we saw on the broadcast in the prologue uh and they all have like weird D D classes basically like there's like mm. the leader the sage the priest the fighter and the ma- mage the mage uh, you made, yeah. Um, and, yeah, so they are all basically, like, truly they think they're playing a game, and, um, they were all, like, quote-unquote, little ultimates at their elementary mm-hmm. school, um, and, yeah, they, they hate adults, and so the whole game is them uh, most dangerous game style, hunting them for sport within this town. Uh. Yeah. In order to kill every adult and create a paradise of only children. So, I will give this in- this intro... Well, something that was weird to me initially, like, when I first played it, was, like, these kids are, like, they're fucking annoying and, like, the way that they, like, derail and talk about so much other shit as they're trying to, like, also exposition stuff. But then I thought, like, that's... That's how kids speak. That's like they they have like no attention span. They can change subjects on a like the turn of a heel, and some like the weird like I guess it works like when it's like you're juxtaposed uh, juxtaposed against like what's actually happening, like the actual events that are occurring in this game. To have these kids that just kind of like know what they want at, and like, they hone in on that, but they also like can like on a dime change change the subject to something else. Like I don't like peeled chestnuts, but I do like. Or no, I I, I like peeled yeah, chestnuts. Kotoko's I don't like unpeeled chestnuts. Favorite food is peeled chestnuts, but her least favorite food is unpeeled chestnuts because apparently, according to her, they are di- basically a different. Yeah, and like you know, those are like they're throwaway lines, but they also work for me. I guess mm-hmm. like like I guess like it took me time to like wrap my head around like oh these kids are going to be changing the subject constantly, and like that was something that kind of annoyed me about Danganronpa two. In some of the trials where, like, Ibuki would be like, oh, do you know that if you cross your eyes, you get double vision? And, like, in the middle of a fucking class trial, where here, it's like, it just feels... A- it feels right for the kids. Yeah, I agree. Right. I think that the kids, like, I think a lot of the writing in this game is bad, but I think that, like, the core elements of the kids themselves... Mm-hmm. And the writing around, like, their characters, not necessarily their abuse... But, like, just, right. you know, the other parts of them, I think, is actually done pretty well. They are very much mm-hmm. children, even though they are yeah. monsters also. Which I think helps play into right. the ending a lot. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so 
They they keep calling. It's also weird. They call Komaru like big sis a lot, and it seems like they really like her until they don't, and they right. slap a Monokuma looking bracelet on her, and fucking yeet her with a parachute down back into the city. Um. And yeah, they're gonna they're gonna hunt her ass. Uh, and then. I know what happens next, like, as, like, the big event, but I don't really remember how we get there. Oh, I think, oh, that's right. Kamaru is dropped into, like, a hospital, right? Yeah, like, on, like she lands on, like, the roof of a hospital. And then, guess who's there? It's Toko from the first game. She, I am gonna, I'm just gonna be, like, up front now. Toko fucking rules in Toko this game. Toko is significantly better in this game. Like, I, I understand why people can't stand on the first game. Toko is, like, the fucking best character in this game. I still have, like, some, like, I still don't love, love Toko, but, like, she is significantly better in this game, and I like her and Komaru's arcs a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also, like, fitting to, or, like, not it's not fitting, it's, it's directly not fitting, but, like, these two characters who could not be more diametrically opposed, like, this is, Komaru, who is, like, she, you know, she's... Brought up as, like, you know, a, she's not an ultimate, she's not a special person, she's, like, a completely normal girl, but she also, like, has not, doesn't really understand this world yet beyond what she's experienced with the kids, and whereas Toko is, like, this absolute fucking black cloud that lingers over everything and makes everything sad and angry and annoying, and, um, I, I feel like they even each other out because, like, Toko has to be, like, the reality check for Kamaru for a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff, um, while also, like, going into her own her own shit about her ongoing toxic relationship with Biakia. And also, like, she's having to sort out through her... Because, like, I mean, we when we meet her uh, here, she is actually uh, Genocide Jill at this point. Like, and so we, we meet her first, and, like, she came here looking for Kamaru, apparently. And, like, she pulls us away, like, away from the Monokumas that are coming up to us. And then she switches to Toko, explains that, like, you know, there's part of it, like, she's talking to Kamara, but, like, she is also communicating to us as a player. Like, she has kind of learned how to control Jill to some extent, mm-hmm. and that is through, like, being able to, like, shock her brain and, like, be able to switch between them at will. Um, which is a lot to take in, and, like, especially, like, for Kamara, uh, who is... It's especially weird because, like, the whole thing is premised on the fact that she promised Biakia that she would never let Jill mm-hmm. kill someone again. Which, like, right. the only context for that that Komaru has is the, like, two seconds that she interacted with Biakuya. <laughs> right. Um, so it's, like, that dramatic irony to a degree. Um, it's also wild, yeah, because Komaru does just, like, first meet this, like, wild serial killer who's... Also, you get to play as Toko. Like, that's one of the mechanics is you can switch to Toko to do, like, melee shit. Mm-hmm. And that rules. I wish you could do yeah, that the she... whole game. <laughs> She's basically an instant win button. Mm-hmm. And I think I think maybe like the easiest mode you can just have infinite charge for her. I'm not positive about that. Don't quote me on that. But uh yeah. It's um it, it's weird it, part of it's weird to me cuz like it gets into when Danganronpa gets more action anime than I ever like really viewed it as initially, but I like by the time the game is over, like it's kind of like settled into that where like it can get stylistic and over the top without necessarily being world breaking, which is I guess mm-hmm. something that I was concerned about at first. Like when I see like she's doing fucking 
Devil May Cry combos on these Monokumas. <laughs> um, and yeah, it, it ended up working for me just because like, I feel like even if it is presented in a certain way, it still felt grounded enough within the world and the character that, that it never went too far off the rails for me. Yeah, I mean, it is like OP, even when like mm-hmm. you, you have like a battery gauge for like, you know, a time limit with her. But even with that, like, you can really do a lot of damage. Um, mm-hmm. That said, though, like, I even did bosses. end up not using Toko as much as I think the game wanted me to. Just because there's, like, mm-hmm. so many situations where, like, yeah, I could just shred through all of this with Toko. But if I have, like, one appropriate shot from Komaru, I can just end it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and I think like for me she was more like a get out of jail free button mm-hmm. than she was the instant win button. Because like I do like I mean, we can talk about this now I guess because I how do you feel about the shooting mechanics in this game and like the it, basically a playing Kamara. Well, so I guess for the listeners who if you haven't played right, so you get the hacking gun that then gets nerfed, and so basically the gun like you can shoot it at any machine, and depending on what truth bullet you have, it'll make the machine do a different thing. So at the start you only have break and move. Um, and, like, the Monokumas, their little, like, red eye is, like, a structural weak point that you can shoot at. Um, it's fine. Like, Mm. I took the, you get the skills, you know, just like the other day in Rampa Games, and I did take, like, the auto-lock skill and the one that slows your cursor down off, just because, like, Mm. I thought they made it worse to play. Um, Yeah. I don't know. It's like, yeah, it's fine. I I didn't hate yeah, it. I, yeah. So like, I, you played on PS4. Uh, PS5. Yeah. Yeah. So I I played it on Vita, and the game runs obviously like at a lower frame rate there than it does anywhere else. And so that was something that I struggled to get people to kind of like finish the game when it like it first came out on Vita because people were like, oh, it's sluggish, and I'm like, it's not fucking Call of Duty yeah. for one thing, and I like like I think that. That's what it's honestly like. Even in terms of like the actual shooting mechanics, more akin to something like Resident Evil Four era Resident mm-hmm. Evil, just in terms of like I had a lot of moments the playing the game where I was like, "Oh, so this is just Dang and Rampa Resident Evil." Yeah, like... and and I think for, what made it work for me more was when it became more of a puzzle than it was just like a straight shooter. Because like when we get things like, uh, like you know, like other truth bullets, like dance or. Uh, knockback, whatever, like, when it would use the tools that it has mm-hmm. to just make these more interesting sort of, like, encounters or puzzles. To, like, they're, like, they're, like, literal puzzles in this game where, like, Monokumas will be set up in a certain way, and it's, like, get through this without, like, it would, like beat all these Monokumas with one bullet or something like that. Like, th- things like that. Um, that was when I found it, like, really interesting and, like, I actually really enjoyed a lot. Um, but, yeah, like, you're thinking, like, the actual shooting, it's fine, it's serviceable. Um, it does get, like, there are some fucking horrific versions of Monokuma in this game uh-huh. that, like, really lean into the horror shit, which worked for me. Um, but I do, like, it generally, like, somebody ever asked, I'm like, play it on PC or PS4, because, or slash PS5, because even though the game was made for Vita initially, and I think, like, even on those ports, like, the, the game does not look demonstrably better. Like, it's just, like, it was working within the, the confines of the Vita. Um, I just think it works or I guess, like, not to say that the Vita version is bad by any stretch, but I, just, I think, like, those hurdles of, like, this game does not feel like a more modern shooter uh, are easier to get over when the game, like, runs uh, 60 frames per second or 
and it's like on a TV. Yeah. Um. But I, I, I did end up playing it for Vita for this, and I do just I, like I just generally prefer to play these games on Vita regardless of which one it is, even just because like that's where that series lives in my head. So that's fair. Yeah, I was thinking about it, and I was like, honestly, like I'm glad that like for me that I did not play this on the Vita because I know I would not have finished it, and I wouldn't have like. I'm not gonna say that I liked this game, but I think I would not have had the more positive ex like experience with it. Because mm-hmm. I definitely came into this expecting, like, basement-level shit, so right. I did have a better experience than that. But I think, like, had I played it on my Vita, which I would not have been able to do anyway, because one of the shoulder buttons is busted. But mm. um, had I done that, I think yeah. I would not have enjoyed it. Yeah, and I think, like, for all the, for all the shit that we're going to get into as we go through this, I do genuinely feel like at, le- at the very least Ultra Spur Girls is not a game that feels like a half-assed cash-in. Like, it does feel like, even if like, I feel like they were maybe ill-informed or ill-advised yeah. on some things that this game does, it does feel like a lot of effort and a lot of care went into this game. Yeah. Um. Even if, it yeah. feels, it definitely a hundred, I was absolutely expecting this to feel like a Disney sequel, but, you know, yeah. like for Danganronpa, and it does not feel like that. It does very much feel like something that was maybe originally intended to be that a little bit but that they like did fully branch into a real story in this world that was meant to expand yeah now that we have toko we be walking around (laughs) around the city and you meet um a boy named yuta who looks very similar to a swimmer we know Mm and you do come to find out that Yuta is uh, Aoi's, uh, Asahina's brother. Uh, and despite him being more athletic in the realm of track and field, he decides to try and swim to shore because Toa City is on an island, um, mm. conveniently. <laughs> and so uh, he does that. And just when it looks like he's going to make it, he is blown up. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then from this, we kind of find out that uh, anyone wearing the wristbands can't leave the city because, like, if they get a certain distance from the city, they will uh, explode. Yeah. And it uh, basically results in, like, Kamara just breaks down. And that's where she has to kind of have her first, like, reality check moment from Toko being like, and she, like, you can, you get the sense that Toko learned a little bit from Makoto and, and from Biaki, just, like, being, yeah, like, yeah. I like yeah, I like, like I like Toko in the beginning here because you can see that like you can it's exactly what you said of like you can see the growth from Dang and Rampa one to here where like she mm. has clearly like you know not just experienced Makoto but like has been doing shit with the Future Foundation and has been you know talking to Byakuya and is like she has grown and you can see it. Yeah, but she's also at this point like she's still struggling to articulate it in a way that is constructive because she like doesn't really have people that she considers friends even though i would say like i'm sure like the rest of the survivors from the first game would well shorabayaki probably consider her to be their friend but like she does not have that like real personal connection to anybody yet and so like she she kind of has to like bull rush her way into trying to explain these ideas of like moving forward and like being hopeful even if even when you see something as awful as what we just did to Kamaru, so she can get, like, she can get off her ass and, like, keep going forward, and 
I think that is just, like, something that I really appreciate about Togo, is just, like, watching her, like, try to figure out how to be a friend to somebody. And especially after, you know, there are going to be some twists later on that, may, that complicate mm-hmm. that in a lot of ways. But, yeah, like, like you said, like, I just, I, I like seeing that she has grown and learned, but she is still, she still has somewhere to go by the end of this game, because she has not learned how to express it in a way that is going to be helpful entirely. I completely agree. So then, after after their failed escape te- attempt, and after T- Toko basically throughout this entire game is going to be the person who, like, when Komaro is freaking out or, like, hesitating, Toko is the one who is basically like, like, what are you doing? Like, you have to make a decision. Right. You have to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does that to other characters, too. That's my favorite thing about Toko, is she is consistently the person who is like, you can't just do nothing. Like, it right. doesn't matter, like, what you do, but you have to do something to change the situation. Yeah. Um, and so from here, we then enter into our first boss fight um, with the leader of the Warriors of Hope, who is named Masaru Daimon, ultimate little P.E., uh, mm. so he's real good at sports, I guess. So something I was actually thinking about with um Masaru in particular is like the the way that they kind of flesh out his character is like the pacing is weird because mm. like with him you don't get a ton of info about like his past up yeah. until his actual boss fight and then you get more a lot later but like everybody else you kind of get like these I don't want to say Easter eggs, but these little, like, breadcrumbs about their past. Yeah. Whereas Masaru, like, you truly don't really find out what his actual deal is until he has, like, a nervous breakdown fighting. Yeah, and I think because it's not until after this fight that we start getting those scenes where we're seeing the Warriors of Hope, like, they're, like, in their, like, little throne room and, like, their conversations, understanding their dynamic more, um... It's more like they use him as kind of like the springboard to kind of start talking about those things. So yeah, it's like that you don't get like the, the equivalent scene of like the flashbacks that these other three kids had. Um, that like they actually like bothered to make a scene out of. Um, or like the, the thing where Jotaro later like tries to like, you know, shows his um, art creation and like starts to revel in the idea that we might hate him and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, where all of that sort of like exposition like comes like straight out of of Masaru's mouth right here which is the first time we've seen him or any of these kids um since we got dropped off yeah like most of it because I think early in the earlier scenes like where you meet the kids in person for the first time like you do get the whole thing of like he really wants to be the leader and um which is you know kind of silly because like Kotoko is the one who's like you only want to give a rock paper scissors like right um, yeah. so you do get that kind of characterization, yeah, but, like, as we're gonna see with the other three kids, you do get these, like, more substantial, like, clues, and also just, like, straight-up facts about what happened to them, mm-hmm. and also their dynamic with each other, whereas, like, Masaru, yeah, just kind of doesn't. And you do get some of the, like, background later in the game, but it feels a little bit weird when compared with the other kids. Yeah. Because like even that like later in the game is like through what are equivalent the equivalent of like codex entries or something mm-hmm. like that that we find or like letters and things like that. Yeah. This scene though, before the boss fight is a, uh, I I will say like 
it's effective. Like, like it gets it very much gets across what this kid went through, what his sort of hang up, so like why he wants to be seen as this very powerful leader. Yeah, it's it's one of the things. Why the game is the game very consistently is uncomfortable in ways that, like even ways that like the actual like quote unquote mainline games and three don't necessarily get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think like I don't know that this nah, not really want, looking to quantify the trauma these kids go through, but like in terms of the actual reactions that these these kids have, that like I guess certain ones just like stick with me in different ways um but it at least gives you the sense of like what you're probably like if this is if this can only get worse from here you're probably going to see equivalent scenes with other kids that are gonna delve into but basically like what the the game is about is like what does despair look like for a child and that is always going to like result in like really uncomfortable scenes like this yeah it's also well and it's i feel like they're also uncomfortable especially like Masaru's is not great, but, like, we'll talk about it when we get to her, but Kotoko's is, like, really bad in a lot of different Mm. ways, and, like... Right. It's just, yeah, the execution here leaves a lot to be desired, I think, with a lot of this stuff, but... Which is hard, though, because I think a lot of what it's trying to talk about is interesting to a degree. Like, Mm. because there's a lot of, like... There is kind of a lot of, like, chicken and egg stuff of, like, these kids are doing these horrible things, but, like, who is responsible for it? Like, at what point, at what point is it the kids having to take responsibility for, you know, doing what they did? At what point are they being manipulated by outside forces? And at what point, like, were they completely failed by the adults in their lives? Um, Right. And that's a big theme that I think... I think the game wrestles with its answers to it a lot. Yeah. And that is something that I think is, and it, it, this is most, I think, apparent with the Kodoko stuff, is that, like, I feel like the game has a harder time committing to its vision of these things than any other Danganronpa mm-hmm. thing in, like, the entire franchise. And I think that is what is, makes, like, you, like, I think you can be uncomfortable in, like, you can talk about uncomfortable things, and, like, you can, and I think... Personally, the Masaru, the Masaru scene works for me better in terms of, like, feeling like it commits to something, where Kodoko's is constantly trying to, like, unders- like underscore how bad what happened was, while also, to, like, not committing to the tone of why and how it's doing these things. And that, I guess in, in that way, the Masaru, like, not having quite as much um, exposition yeah. and, like, time on screen works to his favor. And, like, just the scene's favor, I think. Yeah, because you basically find out that, like, Masaru's dad was, like, an alcoholic who would, like, him. Um, mm-hmm. Which is why, like, I don't remember if they say it when they first introduce them, but you eventually come to find out that, like, all of these kids were in the troublemaker class at Hope Speak Elementary, mm-hmm. specifically. And, like, you yeah. kind of find out that, like, all of them are acting out because of, like, their really bad home lives. Um. Right. And so, yeah, Masaru is, like, you know, being the victim of physical violence um, at home. And so he basically wants to be strong enough to, you know, not have to deal with that shit anymore. Um, Right. And to not be afraid of it, which is why he does what he does, because his arms are shaking because he's trembling in fear of something, which his reaction to is to basically beat his arm until it stops shaking. Mm -hmm. Um. Because I guess, like, he views that as a sign of weakness, yeah. that, like, 
is visible to other people as well. And I think... Which is something that he... I think I... Something about this scene and the Kotoko scene that, like, I think works well is that, like, I think both scenes communicate the idea that, like, a lot of people who are abused, especially, like, when they are children, do not have the, like, framework to understand that there's another way of dealing with things besides that kind of behavior. And so, like... Masaru, right? Like, see, his he's shaking because he's scared. The only way that he knows how to stop that is to use violence, and right. he does that to himself. And Kotoko does a similar thing, and I actually don't have a problem with that so much as the way that it's like framed. Um, right. and again, we'll get there, but um, yeah, it's a very sad scene, but I think it does work for me in that, like, it it does a good job of communicating, like this is the only way that he understands how the world works is through like physical strength and violence. Right. Once again, these are kids. Yeah. I mean, and and that's the world he's been shown by his dad, right? Is that, you know, that's how it works. Yeah. So it's sad, but you do beat him because it's a video game. Um, Oh, and all the kids, yeah, all the kids, you don't actually fight the kids. You fight like giant robots that they control. Um, yeah. But then it's weird because after you defeat them and you do see, we see it the first time with Masaru. Um, once you defeat him, a bunch of like Monokumas and like Monokuma kids just like kind of snatch him. Mm-hmm. And then they disappear. Um, yeah. And they seemingly killed him. So like the, the thing is that the game actually, wish I wish I write in the notes, but like there's going to be like a, a, funeral scene for him set up by monica and like the other kids are like well we never found his body so we don't know that he's actually dead and then monica just like throws a tantrum and is like doesn't want to hear it and so like okay he's dead all right fine Um, yeah and that's kind of a recurring thing where like we don't really know what happens to the uh, the kids who get beaten because like like they keep saying we never see bodies well there, I'm actually now blanking on how it presents it, but like I know that there is art either in the credits or like just in the uh, like the, the uh, gallery that you can look mm-hmm. through in the game that does show that they all they all survived. Oh, good. Um, yeah. So put a pin in that. Cause yeah, cause in the in the text of the game itself, like uh, Nagisa asks about it, and then Kotoko asks about it, and Monica just freaks the fuck out both times. Uh. So you're just like, well, I guess they're dead. Okay, moving on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so because of that, Toko and Komaru don't get to ask Masaru any questions about like what's going on or anything. Uh, so they kind of just have to keep plugging away. Uh, and then, so now we're heading into the sewers. Yeah. The next, the, the, the next kid that we see here is uh, Jotaro, which is a kid who wears a really creepy, like, patchwork mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's a little ultimate artist. Yes, arc. and he makes uh, dioramas out of dead people's bodies, as Ken kind of mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, Fucked up scene? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh... It's, it's which he's like he's it's gross. Like he starts, yeah, and he starts to like rebel in the idea that like Kamaru and Toko must hate him, right, for what he's doing. This is terrible. Who could possibly do this? And 
that's again like starting to go into what we were talking about earlier where like these kids each have a very distinct framework in which they understand how people can relate to them and like in what ways they will um and that seems to be something that he enjoys at to some degree or like or tells himself that he has to enjoy yeah uh, or at least tells himself that he wants um and yeah after the very gross diorama, we meet Shirakuma, who is a Monokuma bear, but is completely white, and he has, like, a flower on him, uh, and his voice is very high-pitched, and, like, you know, um... Yeah, and he's got a, uh, like, one of his, um, the red eye of Monokuma is, like, wrapped up in, oh, like, yeah. almost, like, gauze. Yeah, he also, yeah, he has, like, a bandage over his, like, Monokuma eye, and he also has, like, a bandage on of his arms. Um, so yeah. he's clearly, like, been fighting. And so you find out that Shirakuma is actually an AI that was put into a Monokuma body for some reason. Um, but mm-hmm. he's apparently nice and uh, is helping out a group of adults that are hiding out from the kids in, like, yeah, in the sewers. In, like, a weird section of the sewers that has rooms for some reason. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and yeah. Oh, oh, yes. They are uh being led by Haiji Toa, who is the son of the guy who run the runs the Toa company that runs this city. And he's a fuck. Yeah, he's um. What? Mm, let's put a pin in Haiji for a minute, cause like this is just like. I have feelings about him in terms of, like, his his position within the entire, like, arc of this game's story that just makes me feel some kind of way that is, like, far beyond just, like, when we first meet him where he finds out that Toko is from the Future Foundation and tells us to, like, fuck off and go away because apparently he has some beef with them. Um, yeah. He's a, he is a, he is a character in this video game. Yeah. Um... For right now, all you need to really know is that he's a dude in, like, probably his late 20s to 30s, and one of his arms is in a sling because of, like, a Monokuma attack, I guess? Mm. Uh, but he is the leader of the adults, and so far, it seems like his leadership has been telling them to stay inside, and that's about it. Yeah. But yeah, we'll come back to his role in all of this later, but, um... Wait, is it his mom? I thought that was his sister. I think they make like I think they say like there are lines in here that imply the relationship is like ambiguous, but like it, I don't even remember what specifically the line was or like whether it's been in like some other thing that I've read. But like yes, that is uh, Hiro's mom here, Hiroko Hakakure. I definitely thought she was his sister. Uh, but anyway, yes, the she's. She's hot, one. But two, she is, like, immediately way more, like, competent than, um... Yeah. Fucking, what's his face? God, what is his name? We literally just said it and I already forgot. Haiji? Yeah. Um, for those who maybe she don't... Want, she wants for those to... who don't remember, he's the dipshit clairvoyant guy from the first game. Yeah. Because, like, she's trying to, like, put out, like, rescue teams to find specifically the other people that are on... Like the hit list that Kamaru and she and Yuto were on, um, because uh, it's 
the game hasn't outwardly said it at this point, but like we are gathering that all of these people that are that they're basically being chased throughout the city are family members of the first game's cast. Um, who we I honestly like again like this is one of those things where like, I feel like the game is has like some restraint because like this game this could have been a complete like fan service bullshit game like about the ultimate despairs and about the survivors families and it just kind of doesn't do that because like we only really meet a couple of them but like we do find these like it's a collectible in the game where we see other people like i think it's taka's grandfather mm -hmm. uh byaku's butler toko's pet bug i don't remember what, whatever it was uh celeste's cat Things like that. I'm um, I'm gonna be honest. I missed a lot of these. Like I didn't know. Yeah, I knew about the cat. There's a hit list for the cat, right? Mm. I did not know about the bug. I knew like yeah. There's a lot of that. Was another thing I like about this game though is you get a lot of like the family members. Which on the one hand, I was like, uh, this is gonna be fan servicey and dumb. But then like they do explain it in that like. Have they explained it this far? No, it's the very beginning of chapter oh, okay. three then when they we'll... explain like why they're, why they're all here. But there's a, at any rate, there's a reason why they're all here. Yeah, and I think it actually works. Yeah, the cat one is really funny. Um, the cat hit. Yeah, I don't think you get it here. I only had like two when I first met her. Um, mm. but yeah, the the hit lists are kind of funny to read because they're again very much like um children's, right? Um, works. They're like, oh, like right. this. This is what their demon name is, and this is their hunting ground. Like, it's very, it's yeah. very serious and funny. Yeah. Um. So, when Haiji talks to Toko and them, and finds out that Toko's part of the Future Foundation, he basically tells them to fuck off. Um. Which, you know, it's not great. But Shirakuma yeah. basically tells you, like, hey, I know you're trying to do this thing. Um, like, I know you're trying to contact the Future Foundation. If you go to the top of Toa Tower, which is the highest part of the city, you can get above the, like, jamming grid that the kids mm -hmm. have put up. Um, and you could probably get a message out. And so yeah. you're like, ah, shit. All right. I guess we'll go do that. Um, and so you go into the tower and here we meet a man named tai chi who again speaking of family it is yeah. uh chihiro's dad mm -hmm. um and it's it's sad a little bit because he he yeah. he dies uh yeah. well the, the interesting thing was like he was coming to like hack the uh elevator so we could get to the top because mm -hmm. like he seems that seems that seems to be a family tradition at this point. That like they are hackers. Yeah, I think that like um, yeah, I think they even say something along the lines of like Tai Chi being like a computer, like programmer or something for Toa. And, mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah. I think they just say like it's a beast Monokuma. I think that mm -hmm. gets him as soon as the elevator opens. Um, and we we fight them, but then like we see in his wallet that he had a picture of him and Chihiro at the uh, entrance ceremony at Host Peak. Um, which Kamaru like says like oh what a pretty girl or something along those lines and then Toko just kind of like has this like quiet moment. like it's one of those things where like th they convey her expression by putting her sprite up but she doesn't have any actual dialogue and um, I I did like there are like you know, there was something with Yuda as well where like she said something like I have to tell that swimmer 
about mm-hmm. what happened to like now I have to be the one to do that. Um, where like she has these moments where she like is because we we actually talked about this a little in Danganronpa too, where that was like a scene Makoto, Kyoko, and Byakuya with their memories like restored and knowing that this is the person that we know that knew these people for like years at this point. So, um, I, even though it wasn't like an act, there was no there was literally no spoken line, I always like found that one where, like, Toko was, like, very clearly upset, realizing that this is Jiro's father, that, like, that this is coming to the people that were the family of the people that she knew, even if she didn't necessarily know them as friends, but, um... Yeah, well, and especially because, like, right before he dies, he does, like, a whole thing about, like, you know, I didn't really have a lot of time to hang out with my child, I really want to, mm-hmm. I, like, basically, my greatest wish is that once this is all over, I'll get to find my child and we can hang out together... Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you find out it's Chihiro, who is obviously dead at this point in time. So he wouldn't yeah. have been able to spend time with them regardless. Um, right. And you, yeah, you do get to very much, like, see Toko having that realization and just being sad. It hits. It hits. Game fucked up, but when it hits, it hits. It's true. There's, like, yeah, like, one of the things I do really like is, like, all of the family stuff. Um... Mm. Which we're about to get context we're about for. To get context. That's why they're all here. So yeah. after uh, Tai Chi dies, you go up the ta- up the elevator, and then the elevator stops and it's scary, and you open the doors and surprise, surprise, you're in another boss fight arena. <laughs> that yeah. they, you know, is it just conspicuously here. added here. Yeah. Um, and this time it's against Jotaro, the mask kid. Um. And he he has, like, another little monologue that basically is talking about how, like, he's really ugly and how he can't take off his mask to show them because if he did, their eyeballs would melt and shit. Because apparently, like, he only ever says she, but, like, oh, no, you find out later who it is, but he only ever says she, but you kind of assume it's, like, his mom basically mm. told him that he's, like, hideous and that she hates him and stuff. Uh... So, that's his deal for now, basically. Um, And he also tells them that the Warriors of Hope were given the goal to make the Paradise by Big Sis Junko, along with the Monokuma Mm. kids. Uh, So, we all know that name by now. Uh, And that raises some big ol' red flags for Toko. Um. Yeah, so we fight the boy, and then he also is disappeared by the Monokuma kids. They, they pull off his they pull off his mask first, and then we see he looks like a normal. He's fucking really kid. cute, actually. He's like a beautiful yeah. child, and I forgot about that. But yeah, they do pull off his mask. He looks. He's actually a really really cute kid, and then he gets disappeared by the Monokuma. Yeah. Um. So then they, Toko and uh, Komaru, make it to the top of Toa Tower, and they call me, beat me if you want to reach me, to uh, Makoto <laughs> at the Future Foundation. Yeah. Where he looks into the camera and tells us the plot of the first game. Yeah. That is basically what the phone call is. Um, yeah, so chapter three starts at this point, and it's basically Makoto and Toko being like, Here's what happened at Hope's Peak, because Komaru, like, mentions mm. 
Toko, and Makoto's like, wait, Toko's with you? Right. And then we find out that she basically, like, stowed away um, to come here. Yeah, on Biakia's helicopter. Um, yeah, so, which is why, like, she kind of tries to hide from Makoto at first, because right. she doesn't, like, want them to know that that's what she did. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so Toko's a, store- a stowaway. Uh, and from here, we find out that, like, the motive video that was used in Danganronpa 1 with everybody's loved ones, uh, was basically the result of this town. Like, that's why Komaru is there, that's why Hagakure is there, you know, like, every family member is there because Mm -hmm. those videos were real, and those loved ones were kidnapped and kept in this city. Um, right. And so, yeah, that's that's the whole deal there. And I really like that because, like, I like that they took that kind of like loose thread and were like, no, like mm-hmm. we're we're not just gonna you know either write it off or give it like a shitty answer. We're going to like actually tell you what happened in a way that continues to expand this world. Um, yeah. And they even say that like I don't I don't know how they came across this information, but like there was a point where if the killing game had gone on longer, Junko planned to have all of these characters that are like on the hit list like engage in their own killing game. Like not they don't specify like if it was gonna be like the the, the class trials or it was gonna be something along the lines of like the tragedy of Hosty Academy where they just stuck them in a room with like fight and um that that also worked for me because it's like like it expands the world like you said, but it also like made it seem more intentional in terms of like what Junko was planning ahead and yeah and like why, why she didn't just kill like, them in the first place right and why they would have like still just been kind of stuck for a long time because nobody was there to like give an order to make them to make anything happen with them they were all stuck in that yeah um, yeah because Junko dies and then they're just kind of like well I guess they're just here yeah too there's one of the hit lists that you get um that is for one of the other idols that's in Sayaka's group Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just another moment of like it, it's just kind of cool where like you find out that Komaru is actually a really big Sayaka fan and yeah. then you're, it's once again Toko like reacting and being like Ugh. yeah I actually don't think I, I, I've platinum this game so I know I got them all at one point but I did not find them all for the playthrough because they are there's a lot definitely uh, they're also like amongst the most hidden of all of the collectibles in this game which there are a lot and um, because I know I got them once, but I have not, I did not get them this time. Yeah, no, I definitely just did the ones that I could find, but I think I found, like, I found Kamaru's, I found the cat, I found the idol, and I found one that was for, like, a lady that, like, preys on younger, on, like, young boys, and I was like, Jesus! Hmm. Uh. I don't know who that I is. I don't know either, I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> but that's that and basically we find out on this call with Makoto also that the reason that the Future Foundation has not like already stormed into Toa City is because that now that Byakuya has been captured um, the kids have a hostage Mm -hmm. and so like aside from you know obviously Makoto not wanting to kill Byakuya uh, Toko is adamantly against it and literally threatens to kill Komaru over it right um, Which is where the the friendship we had been built at this point suddenly starts to fall apart. 
Yeah, because like 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 what Ken said, like despite how um different Komaru and Toko are, they do really like balance each other out and they are starting to become friends. Especially because Komaru is kind of just like a golden retriever person and that she just like kind of refuses mm-hmm. to accept that Toko won't be her friend. Right. Um Yeah. But yeah. At this point, Togo does literally, like, threaten to murder Komaru if she, you know, like, gets in the way of keeping the Future Foundation out. And she gets a little scary. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tense for a bit as we try to, like, make our way down this tower. Yeah, there's a lot of moments in this game that are pretty good, actually, where, like, Komaru and Toko will have, like, had an argument or something, but they, like, still have to be together physically in a space, right. and so it's just, like, dealing with that situation. Yeah. It was very good. It also, like, I mean, like, now that I'm thinking about it, like, it does make this, uh, this whole chapter of Chapter 3, like, a little different in terms of there's a lot less of the, like, walking across the city to get to one thing to do another thing. Because, like, we are going to do something that is going to basically put us, like, on a set piece. Mm-hmm. Like, up until the point where we're going to get to a boss fight. Yeah. Yeah. So like, they at least, like, keep it fresh that way. Yeah, and a lot of the... I feel like a lot of this game feels repetitive, but at the same time, they do break it up a lot by being, like... Okay, like, Toa Tower is going to be a whole chapter, and it's, like... You know, this huge building going up as opposed to the sewers where you were going down. And then... Mm-hmm. You know, the next part is like, oh, okay, now you're going to do more walking in the city. Um, and then it's kind of, again, like, another building that you have to move through vertically. Um, so I think that's nice. Even though it, it is I, I think, kind of a lot of the same shit over and over again. Yeah, I do think, like, like it is, it can be repetitive, but I do think they do have a pretty good sense of place with Toa City. Just in terms of, like, with the limited areas that they have, because, like, it is, this is a fucking video game, so it's not some open world bullshit, mm-hmm. but, like, they do, like, at least give you a pretty strong sense of how this place operated before mm. everything went to shit. Yeah, there's even a monorail that you get to be on at yep, one spe- point. Yep, speaking of which, we're almost at that point. Almost! Um, but first, we're going back to the Warriors of Hope base. And this is where we get to meet their advisor, which is a, an all-black Monokuma called Kurakuma, and he's so fucking weird, because he's, like, a very racist caricature in his Mm -hmm. appearance. Like, he has, like, a golden grill and, like, gold chains and, like, a pimp hat and shit. But then when he talks, he sounds like a bad, like, mafioso, like, Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. New Jersey dude accent. It's so weird. And I don't know how they did it in, like, the Japanese version. But the American version, or, like, the English version is so fucking strange. He's also just, like, he's a fucking... He's very vulgar. Foul-mouthed Yeah, I feel like... I was gonna ask you. I was like, I'm pretty sure this is not the first time in the series that someone has said fuck. But I feel like he says it the most. I... That's probably right. I, I mean, the... Not to jump too far ahead to like the almost fucking last scene, the other character that I think um probably says it next is Junko when she's in her like rocker yeah. personality. It's like I think it's her Mondo and 
Kurakuma. Yeah. But I think Probably Kurakuma that, says yeah. it the most. Oh yeah, I for sure. Because this this fucking robot bear man is basically not coherent anytime he speaks. No, and he, you like, never understand what the fuck he's saying. He's always just going off on like a weird tangent that's like, mm-hmm. like Ken said, just like vulgar. Like there's a lot of like him being like a perv. It's just yeah. The only funny like I mean. There was one line in specific specifically that made me laugh the first time I heard it was near the end when uh, Nagito is saying something to him and Monica, and he's like, "Oh, by the way, I have something to say to you." And then he goes, "Oh, you're finally gonna come out of the closet!" And like that was the only time he made me laugh. I saw that day. too, and I was like, "I saw that scene literally last night." And then um, I love that Nagito just like looks at him for a second, and then it's just like, "Anyway." <laughs> um, yeah. I think that I think that's those are the scenes where he works the best is when you have someone that's going to kind of like ignore him mm-hmm. and like like let him be his loose cannon on the side where the kids often mm, sometimes feel like more inclined to like actually try and like have a conversation with him. And I think he just works better as like this kind of like one-off quip character that exists on the sidelines of actual shit happening. I just like I get Shirakuba. I feel like you could honestly take Kurakuma out of the game. And it would be fine. Mm-hmm. Like, the only yeah. thing that he really serves for is the reveal at the very, very end. Which I think, yeah. like, could have been done with just Shirakuma. Honestly. Um, yeah, I mean, well, mm, let's let's put a pen in that, because I, I do have some feelings on I that, I just, actually. like, Shirakuma, like, does later. not... Because Shirakuma has a role, right? Right. And, like... Which is weird because like they don't even really like Sh- Shirakuma has a role within the resistance, but doesn't like he's not like an officer or whatever. You know what I mean? Like he's not like right. Captain Shirakuma. Whereas like Kurokuma, they specifically say like he's the kid's advisor. Like he's there to help supervise them and help them with this plan. And mm-hmm. then he never fucking says anything that like makes sense. And he like right. never. He never does any of the exposition well. Like, it's always just confusing. And there's a couple times where they're like, oh, yeah, like, they got this great plan from me. And it's like, eventually you find out, you know, why that's true. But it's really hard to swallow that, like, in the game to, like, moment to moment with him. Right. Yeah. That's that's for sure. Anyway, he sucks. Um, yeah. I hate him. Uh, Valid. But yeah, so now we go back to the resistance in the sewers, and uh, we get there right in time to save some people from a Monokuma attack, but the mm-hmm. base is completely flooded with them. And Haiji and the rest of the adults blame Toko and Tomaru for it, saying that like they led the Monokumas back right. by coming back there, even though they Haiji had already basically told them to fuck off. Um, and they capture, um, they capture Komaro and Koto, or not Kotoko, and Toko, and lock them up in prison cells that they weirdly have in the sewer. Mm. Again, yeah. the resistance base is very strange the more you think about it. Um, yeah. But, all of a sudden, Kotoko, who is the only other girl in the uh, Warriors of Hope, aside from the leader, Monica, 
Oh, who I forgot to mention, but it is a key detail. Uh, Monica is in a wheelchair. Yes. Put up in the yes. mask. Very important. And according to the other children, it is because of something that her family did to her. Which right. also put a pin in that. Um, so yeah, so Kotoko shows up and is basically like, I'm gonna let you go. I'm gonna free you. Uh, because you're cute. But fuck Toko, she's not cute, so I'm not gonna let her go. Um, <laughs> uh, mm. and is like, what? <laughs> um, and she basically, this scene is a little bit weird, because she's basically, Komaru's basically like, I can't do that, like, I can't leave Toko, that'd be fucked up. Right. And Kotoko's basically like, okay, well, why don't we just start with you leaving the cell? So then they, they leave the cell, and, su- surprising no one, Komaru is fucking bamboozled. Um, <laughs> like, just truly gets, like, cartoon hammered over the head, basically, because, like, yeah. uh, Monokuma kids come and, like, uh, steal all of their shit, or no, they don't steal all their shit, but they, like, Kotoko, basically, after getting Komaru out of the cell, just takes her. Um, right. Which, again, Komaru, you're, like, 15 years old. This is a child. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, she, I mean, she's struggling. She she's been stuck in an apartment for like a year and a half. She's lost all her sense of social skills and like understanding of dynamics between her and child. So I give her. A break. I'm just saying. I think if I had not seen a child in a year and a half, I could still punch a child. But would you have the heart to do? After all this, I think so. <laughs> You see Kotoko playing with dead bodies. I think I could punch her. That's true. Valid. Like, I have a problematic soft spot for that character um, after having mm. finished this game. But, like, I think in a, if, if I were Komaru, I would fucking punch this child. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so Kotoko kidnaps her. Meanwhile, Monokuma kids show up, and they let Toko out of her cell and give her back like, her stun gun and Kamaru's gun. I basically just, like, let her out into the city. They're like, go find her, have fun! And, oh, and that's right, they also have, like, an iPad that has, like, a GPS of Kamaru's bracelet. So they truly are just being like, go find her. And I think Togo even mentions, like, it's kind of fucked up that you guys are just, like, giving this to me. This seems sus as hell, but, like, whatever, I guess I'll figure it out. So then, yeah, so uh, Toko pops onto the monorail to uh, save Komaru. Who is um, going through... Something fucking weird. The worst part of the yes. game? Absolutely. If, you, like, if you're playing, if you're listening to this after you've been playing Danganronpa Decadence and wondering why this game's not on that Nintendo console... This is why. I mean, well... This is probably why? I mean... The whole game is probably why, but this is arguably, like, the most why. Yeah. Um, cause yeah, so, basically, through, going through the level and, like, talking to Kotoko and stuff, you find out that, um, she used to be the ultimate little drama, and she was, like, a child actress, and she's very aggressive about saying that that is in the past, and that is not who she is anymore. And you come to find out that that is because her mom was, like, I guess, like, kind of a raging stage mom and really wanted her to be an actress and to get into, like, film Mm. and TV. 
And because of that, she was allowing, uh, like, men in the industry to sexually uh, abuse Kotor. Mm -hmm. Um, and they would say, you know, like the word gentle is a trigger for her, um, because men who hurt her said they were going to be gentle to her. And so she even has a scene with Monica where she like, where Monica says something about being gentle and Kotoko like freaks the fuck out. So then Monica starts hitting her because like Kotoko would rather like be hurt than have you be gentle because in her mind, like that is associated with being assaulted. Um, right. So, because of that, uh, and this is where this gets extremely fucking messy. Like, it was already not great, but here it gets even worse because Kotoko, like, her whole framework based on this is that, like, because she was told that the reason that these men were hurting her like that is because she's so cute. She has come to believe that, like, that's just what happens to cute girls. And that it's, like, a responsibility they have to deal with. And so since she thinks Komaru is cute, she thinks that Komaru also needs to be um, abused in that way. And so she, like, connects her to a weird fucked up tentacle machine that has, like, hands all over it. And you mm-hmm. have to play a mini game where you like slap them away from your body, um, and it's like <sighs> I don't like this part not because it's talking about like child sexual abuse. I don't like it because it tries to make it like very jokey, and like yeah. it tries to make it like a bit at Komaru's expense, and not in the way of right. like you are being like assaulted, but in the way of like. Haha, <laughs> oh, this little kid is doing this to you and you like it. Isn't that wild? Like, even yeah. when Toko comes in, because Toko eventually, like, fucking kicks the wall down or whatever, um, her first thing that she says is, oh, am I interrupting something? Uh, right. And it kind of continues to be a bit with Toko, where Toko, like, says that the, the elementary school took Komaru's virginity. And it's, like, yep. really deeply uncomfortable, like, one, that your friend would make jokes like that anyway but just to like it's it's weird that they pivot this like expression of Kotoko's trauma and like her you know like how that has warped her understanding of the world to then being like a weird joke at the expense of Komaru and a mini game that we have to play yeah that's like get that point across yeah it's it's yeah it, it, it honestly it also sticks out to me as like it is the only one of these, like, childhood traumas that this game treats that way. Mm-hmm. Because even, you know, with all the various loaded stuff that happens with all the other kids, the game never once treats those things like there's not a gravity to what's happened to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, like, before we have, like, the actual quote-unquote boss fight with Kotoko, we fight her as Toko, and she... You cut off all her clothes. You cut, you cut off Kotoko's clothes, and, like, there's a point where she... Shout out to the like, I'm, I'm 18, this is fine. And I'm like, why is that line in this game? Like, why is any of, like, I, like, I mean, it's not really, like, any hypothesizing I have to do as to why they did these things. Like, I just think it speaks to, like, a weird, like, I, I mean, and I don't even want to say that I think Danganronpa as a franchise has this problem all that much. Although I would say 
Actually, I guess, like, other than the first game, which I think was, by and large, fairly respectful to its uh, female characters. Um, where 2 has Mikon and her various things, V3 has Miu. 3 is actually mostly fine, now that I think about it. Um, with the exception of one episode in the Despair arc. But, uh, yeah, I just... That, what I... I mean, everything that you said is, you know, sums up my problem with this, but also it's just like, I just don't... I feel like the game has a very hard time committing to how it wants to portray this issue specifically. Yeah, um, and it's... Where... It feels like a gendered issue, which is mm-hmm. really weird when the main characters are also women for the first time yeah. ever in this series at this point. Um, yeah. Like, because truly, like, your two playable characters are women. The antagonist, Monica, is a woman, and then Kotoko ends up being a pretty big part of the story. But, like, there's still that weird, like, and I, I don't know how much of it is, like, you know, um, localization and stuff. Mm. But, I mean, at the end of the day, like, you have to be localizing stuff that's already there. So, like, I don't know. But, right. like, it does have that, like, kind of older school anime, just, like, bad vibes about women's issues things. Mm-hmm. And, like, just, like, getting to joke about sex and stuff. Which, like, is already bad when they do it with the high schoolers. And it gets, like, pretty gross with Mew. But, like, this is just, like, a new level of, like, they do, at the start, you know, seem to be treating it very seriously. And, like, the way that Kotoko talks about it is very, like, poignant and sad in a lot of the ways where she talks about, you know, like, not wanting to make her mom upset, not wanting to hurt her mom, but not understanding why these people are hurting her. And, you know, not even wanting to be an actress or a starlet in any capacity. Um, Right. And then having this happen to her. It's just like, yeah, it's really weird and fucked up that they turn it into a joke. And again, a joke at at Komaru as if that makes it better for Kotoko, which it doesn't. And like, I just all like my takeaway is it feels like a lapse in maturity of the, in the game in terms of how it's starting but also like a weird like lack of there, the, I also get the sense that like there's a lack of confidence to stay within the actual darkness of what this is talking about in a like very tangible way that it does all the other things because I think there is just like that sense of yeah I, I just get the sense that like there's like a lack of confidence to like really sit with that in the same way it does the other issues that these kids deal with and like you said it, like it of all of the things that they talk about, for them to have that sudden lapse, uh, this was not the place for that to happen. Yeah, well, especially because for the other, like, Nagisa's background is also de- pretty, like, detailed. But, like, Jotaro and, um, what's his face? Masaru, like, you find out more about them later on, but neither of them have, like, you know, this detailed stuff. Mm. In the same way that, like, you don't necessarily get details, details about what happened to Kotoko, but you get enough that you can, like, infer a lot. Right. Um, so then it's weird that she was the one that they chose to then, because, like, Danganronpa does kind of have that tone of being, like, very dark, but also kind of, like, campy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's weird that Kotoko is the one that they chose to do that with. Yeah. Well, if nothing else, she does get to be the one that doesn't fucking 
eat it from the Monokuma kids at the end of her boss That's fight. true. Um, very specifically, she does not eat it because uh, Toko snags her before the yeah. Monokuma kids can. Because she's basically like, I've had enough of this shit, you're gonna answer my questions. Mm. <laughs> um. But it uh, turns out somebody else is gonna answer our questions instead, because well, Nagisa shows up. It's less that he's gonna answer our questions, and more that he's gonna very forcefully ask us to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Politely. That's true. Nagisa's like a weirdly polite kid, despite the fact that he's trying to murder everybody. <laughs> I mean, he, 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 just because he wants to murder people doesn't mean he doesn't have manners. God. But yeah, so Nagisa shows up and I actually really liked this scene a lot of just like yeah. Like like Toko is threatening Kotoko basically and Nagisa shows up and is like you know, it's shitty that you're doing that. Of course an adult is doing that. And like <laughs> to be fair, Toko and Komaro both kind of like she just tried to kill us. Um mm. she also like assaulted Komaru, but okay, whatever. Anyway, and Nagisa basically like kind of tells Kotoko to just like get out of there, um, because he's gonna take Toko and Komaru to the one passageway out of the city, because he mm-hmm. basically says that like they're fucking everything up, and he doesn't think that they can right. complete their plan if they stay. <laughs> right. And so- even takes off Komaru's span. Yeah, and he takes Kamara's wristband off as, like, a show of good faith. Um, and the main, like, the key thing here is that, like, he's saying, like, this whole time you've wanted to get out, right? Like, I'll show you how to get out. Like, we can just end this. Right. And Toko kind of shows hesitation and is like, are you sure? Um, you know, this seems kind of sus. And Kamara kind of seems, like, questioning it, too, but she just kind of goes with it. It's kind of the same thing that happens right. with Kotoko, where she's just, like, kind of along for the ride. Which you'd right. think after what happened with Kotoko, she'd be like, I'm not trusting any of these children anywhere near me. Mm. But. Yeah. Eh, they do. And so now we're heading into chapter four, and we're going with Nakisa. Who is, oh, who also is the new leader now that uh, Masaru is dead. Right, right. Yeah, that, that did happen. Um, and that comes... So now he's, like, taking on all this responsibility. Yeah, and it seems like he... Which might be a thing yeah, for him. Yeah, it seems like he maybe has a thing about that. Who could say? Um, oh, also something to point out, I think, that we've kind of glossed over that's really important, is all of these kids are obsessed with Monica. Yeah. Like, all of them... In a way that we might know of another dynamic in this, this mm-hmm. series. Perhaps. Um... Which is similar, but I think, like, it's interesting, and we can get into it later, but I think Monica brings a very interesting aspect to it. Um, but yeah, basically, like, all of the kids love her. They call her their princess. Um, they all want her to like them. Whenever she throws a fit or gets upset at them, they all freak out. Mm. Um, and so, like, that seems to be the worst for both Kotoko and Nagisa. Mm-hmm. Um, but specifically Nagisa seems to have a real fucking thing about this. Um yeah. Oh, it's also weird. There's a scene, I think that we already passed it, but there's a scene where they're like Kotoko and Monica are talking and then Nagisa comes in and Kotoko like makes jokes about Nagisa being jealous about like her and Monica talking. 
So they do very much imply that, like, Nagisa and Kotoko, like, both have, like, crush-level feelings towards her. And they both mm. say repeatedly, like, I love you. Like, I love Monica. Like, so it is a very yeah. intense relationship. Right. For pretty much everyone involved, but particularly those two. Yeah. Um, which gets interesting later on for both of them, actually. Um, but yeah, so as Nagisa is trying to take Toko and Komaru to the secret passage out of the city, uh, he basically at the start tells them, like, oh, the Monokumas won't attack me, so we should be safe. Plot twist, the Monokumas start attacking them. Mm-hmm. Um, and Toko and uh, some other folks later on are all kind of like, seems like your friends think you betrayed them. Right. Uh, that's pretty bad. Yeah, they, they, they keep going. And you get kind of more, like, backstory on how we got here from Nog- Nagisa, which is basically that in their little, like, troublemakers class at Hope Peak, uh, Nagisa, Kotoko, Jotaro, and Masaru, along with Monica, were all kind of planning to kill themselves together. But then Junko showed up and... Um, was basically like, well, if you're going to throw your lives away, you might as well give them to me instead. Um, right. And so they, you know, start calling her Big Sis Junko, and they're very devoted to her. They all say that she mm. gave them hope, which is, you know, interesting given who Junko is. Um, right. Yeah. So so put a pin in that for now. Um. And then we get to the area that the secret passage is in, which is a shrine. And there's, like, a staircase underneath the shrine. And uh, as Komaru is kind of, like, debating if she actually wants to leave. Because Togo's kind of being like, are you sure you just want to, like, bail on this whole situation? Mm. Um, Nagito shows up. And he... Basically, he basically is, like, very aggressive about keeping Komaru in the city. And to do that, he reveals that he actually made a deal with Toko before all of this started to get her to bring Komaru to the kids' HQ. Um, because, you know, he has Byakuya's leverage. And that's, I'm assuming this is the point that you were talking about earlier, Ken, where the friendship gets very tested yeah and it also like i mean it's the interesting thing i think is that by this point toko is starting to realize that like she might start to give a shit about another person in a way that might be uh more so is not necessarily more so than biakia but at least enough to be like i will put this person out of harm's way and find another solution i'm not willing to give up this person Mm -hmm. For Byakuya, I'm, like, not, like, I'm becoming more selfless in that way. And it's also interesting because, like, we, well, it also starts to, like, cause friction between the Warriors of Hope. Because there's a point where, like, Nagis is like, what the hell are you doing here? You're, like, I'm trying to make them move so we can keep doing what we're doing. And then Nagito basically looks at him like, what do you think is actually more important here to the Warriors of Hope, to Monica? Um, paradise or the game? Like, which, what do you think is actually the goal here? And Nagiso, or I just their names are too similar. Nagiso, fucking Nagisa, um, 
basically like freaks out. He's like, no way. There's no way you're just, you're lying. And, but then also like realizes there might be a hint of truth to it, which is why he runs yeah, away. Well, especially because also Nagito points out, like, that's why you did this in secret. Like, that's why you didn't right. just tell the others because you knew that they were going to see you as a traitor. Yeah, which he claims they do now, which is why the Monokumas are attacking. Yeah, and Nagisa's whole thing is, like, he really, really wants to build the children's paradise. That is, like, his right. whole thing. Even at the beginning when the game starts, he's like, are we sure we have time to be playing the game? And then right. Monica throws a fit, and he's like, okay, okay, we'll play the game, whatever. Yeah, it's an interesting... Like, this is where we really see Nagisa's kind of start to unravel, because, yeah, he runs away after this encounter with Nagito because it's like pretty apparent that like and we'll see more of it later but like Nagito is clearly like aware of some things that Nagisa is not right but yeah so he oh the other thing that's important to note too is like throughout the game like Monokuma kids show up and give gifts and there's like you know Mm -hmm. a Monokuma kid runs the equipment store and there are these, like, UFOs that if you shoot them with the move bullet, they, like, show you which way you're supposed to go. And Nagito reveals that he is responsible for all of that because he has been trying to get them to go to where he wants them to go. Yeah, and it also, like, it explains, like, game balance, as we called it before, but also, like, I like the idea that Nagito is, I mean, not he's not technically the mastermind in, like, the most uh, overarching way, but I like the idea that Nagito is just, like, kind of fucking with people the way that we know him to mm-hmm. in the way that he can in this this particular scenario and in this context. Yeah, it kind of, it definitely shows that like Nagito has kind of always been who we saw him as. Right. Um even even, you know, mm-hmm. as part of Ultimate Despair, he is still basically exactly the same. Yeah. And so Komaru actually like kind of starts deciding that she's going to stay. Um but Toku, Toko, like, fights to make her leave, um, mm. even though it means that she... So we fight her. Yeah. Even though it means that she won't get... She won't have the bargaining chip to get the Akia anymore. And Nagito tries to, like, egg this on, but Jill surprises them by, instead of attacking Komaru, she actually attacks Nagito and cuts his legs open. Oh, and she also reveals that, like, while... Jill and Togo don't share memories, they do share feelings. And mm. so she basically is like, yeah, so even though I don't remember what you did, I know your bad vibes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't remember but it, you know but that. I know. <laughs> but I know you did something to merit this. It's actually really, um, it's actually like really funny. I like that part of the dynamic between Jill and um, Togo very much of like the idea that they do share like vibes, essentially. Right. And so, like, the other, one or the other can just be like, I don't know why, but I fucking hate you. Yeah, yeah. And she doesn't even explain, like, why do you think we both have, like, feeling for Byakuya? Like, and, yeah, so, like, it all checks out. It's fine. The lore is solid. But, yeah. So, after that, they get the fuck out of there. Um, and through, you know, more lovely storytelling and little documents and whatnot, and then eventually Nagisa's own dialogue. We come to find out that Nagisa's dad was actually a teacher at Hope's Peak Elementary, and that he used Nagisa basically as a guinea pig for uh, Mm. the experiments in curating and developing talent in children. 
And so he would keep Nagisa up for like three to four days straight studying and then like would keep him awake and alive using like IVs. Mm-hmm. Um, and like kind of considered it to be like video game style leveling up. Yeah. Um, pretty fucked up. Um, but yeah, they go back to the resistance base again. And Komaru does a speech that basically ends up convincing Haiji and the other adults to fight back against the Monokumas instead of just sitting around being mole people, as Toko puts it. Yeah. Uh, Which actually, there we actually didn't put on the note here, but when we get there, they're being attacked again. And what we end up doing to kind of like plug the hole that Monokumas are coming through. Oh, we blow is... up Shirakuma. That's right. I forgot. Yeah, which um, we actually have to like, like Kamara's not about it, so they like, doesn't want to sacrifice Shirakuma. So like, we have to like actually like quote unquote fight Shirakuma. Oh yeah, Shirakuma. Shirakuma you... does the same shit where he's like, "I'm gonna kill you." Yeah, and the the one of the funniest fucking Easter eggs of this game for me was if you do the dance bullet on him, which is like used to stun normal Monokumas, he does the same dance that Monokuma does in the OP of the animation uh, adaptation. I always thought that was funny. I but, didn't uh, notice that because yeah, I shot up. that fucker in the face. Not valid. The yeah. thing is, like, as soon as I saw Shirakuma, I was like, this fucker is bad. And then, like... Yeah, the, And, if, like, his whole thing is, like, he's deeply saccharine. He's very sweet. He's like, I believe in you and all this mm-hmm. stuff. But then he'll say really creepy shit, too. Like, he's very much like a where's my hug guy. <laughs> Val, yeah, I that's, like took that's a screenshot. Of, I took a screenshot of him doing that, and I was gonna post it on Twitter, but then I got too high and forgot. Um, but there's truly a moment he where they come back and he's like, "Embrace me, come into my arms," mm. and he yeah. sounds like that. He sounds like fucking Mickey Mouse. <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah, he's weird. He's a weird man. But Komaru is very attached to him, and then. It, and he survives, actually. He does survive getting blown up. Just his head. Yeah, the chip that the AI is in is in his head. And for some reason, only his head survived. <laughs> um, but they do block the hole that the Monokumas are coming in through. And then Komaru gives her, like, fucking Braveheart speech. Um, and from that, Haiji is basically like, well, we do have, like, one more weapon that we could use to stop this. Um, but we have to go into, like, the fucking basement-ass basement of Toa Tower to get it. Um, and uh, I, Haiji Toa, I'm gonna rely on you two teenage girls to get me there. <laughs> because my arm is broken and I'm a shithead. Um, I hate him. Yeah. I hate Haiji so much. Yeah. Um, and I think, actually, uh, the first, the reason I first started hating him is coming up in in, in this section. Yeah, um, which uh, is actually the first thing he says when we get to the uh, the the place where we're going. Yeah, is uh, is there anything else you wanted to say before we go into the basement of Toa Tower? Uh, we did actually miss on one thing. Uh, in the Resistance, they have like this kind of like this TV setup that is uh, oh, right. getting a broadcast from somewhere, and all we've really seen of it so far is uh, we have seen scenes where some of the adults are like screaming at it, like. About their loved ones. We don't really know why or what's happening or what they're seeing. Yeah, there's just a guy who's like, that's my wife! Yeah. <laughs> Borat is in. <laughs> Borat is in Ultra Despair Girls. 
So, the only uh, yeah, reason put, I put remember in that is because they do a flashback to it later. And so yep. I just remember specifically, like, the little pink outline man being like, That's my wife! <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, damn, dude, same. <laughs> Me, if I had a wife. I was gonna say, like, you need a screenshot and just, like, make that a reaction image. <laughs> <laughs> I should. Play through all of it again just to get that. I think there's a chapter mm. select. Anyway, um, so yeah, so that's all happening, and so clearly, like, some shit is going down. And so then we can jump over back to the Warriors of Hope base, uh, where Nagisa has returned after his encounter with Nagito, and- Beating him up. Yes. And, uh, Monica is there and is being a creep. And she basically reveals to him that she also, like, that she has been working with Nagito because Mm -hmm. she wants Komaru to come to the HQ because she has something to do with Monica's plan for the successor, which is something she keeps talking about. And she basically tells Nagisa, like, that she lied to them and that she never cared about getting revenge against the adults or about creating a children's paradise. Um... And then, like, this scene also really, really was, like, disturbing to me. Um, Mm. She, after telling him all this, she basically tells, like, the gist of what she's saying is, like, but that doesn't matter, right? You don't, it doesn't matter because you love me so much. And, like, and then she, like, forcibly kisses him, even though he's been, like, smacking her in the face, telling her to get away from him. Because, like, he really cares about the children's paradise and stuff, so he's really, really upset about finding all this out. So he's, like, fucking smacking her in the face, and she just, like, leans up in her wheelchair and grabs his face and, like, forcibly kisses him. And basically just, like, won't accept that he is not about this. And, like, tells him that she has all these expectations and stuff for him, and so then he just kind of, like... She just kind of, like, emotionally beats him into submission. Right. Yeah. Um. Monica sucks. Yeah, like, Monica is an abuser. <laughs> yeah, and it's, like, distinctly, I mean, well, it's different than the way that Junko did it, at least as far as we ever really see of Junko doing that on screen. Junko, the way that Junko does it on screen is, like, we've talked about it before, but... Junko has that force of nature, like, inevitability to her, where right. it doesn't, it feels less like manipulation, even though that's what it is, than, like, just, like, it's inevitable that people are going to kind of give in to her. Whereas Monica, like, this game goes out of its way to show her, like, manipulating these kids and, mm. like, pulling on their weaknesses and their triggers and their, you know, um, like baggage yeah and also doing it in like a context where like monica's doing it to like who are people who are ostensibly her allies like there is like you know there's there's an extra layer to it where like junko is like the antagonist of those interactions when we see them happen so far Mm -hmm. um versus here where monica is like i know because i because of our relationship i know exactly what buttons to push and i know exactly how to get you to not even a like you don't even need to agree with me, but you're going to do what I want. Where that is, you know, a, a distinct difference in, in dynamic between 
like say Junko and the Ultimate Despair, that is like they are on board because of their deal. Mm-hmm. Um, where here, like Monica straight up beats people into submission. Yeah, when it's also like Junko's stuff, also like a little spoilery, I guess, but Junko's stuff does lean harder into like straight up brainwashing and shit. Whereas, like, we see Monica actively manipulating these kids and, like, actively playing mm. on their weaknesses, which I think is, again, it, like, this game is a lot darker in that way. Yeah. Where, like, there's a lot of, you know, like, shit in Danganronpa 1 and 2 as far as, like, stuff that the kids have been through and all that, but, like, most of their trauma is coming from the game itself. Whereas, right. like, the kids in this who are antagonists, like, their whole deal is the trauma they dealt with before any of it happened. Right. And, like, yeah, and it just, it makes you feel so bad for Kosoko and for Nagisa because, like, she's just using the exact things that, like, you know, are their whole deals or their whole complexes to just push them Mm. in the ways that she wants. And, yeah, it just sucks. Yeah. So you have to hang out with Haiji for fucking ever, and it sucks. <laughs> um, but basically, so you go to Toa Tower, and he keeps telling you, like, oh, there's a trump card in the basement. Oh, there's a trump card in the basement. And then um, there's one particular part, and this is the thing that made me hate Haiji, is it's just, like, a weird piece of dialogue that ends up being kind of a throwaway. Um, yeah. But there's, like, a puzzle where you have to get a Monokuma to stand on a button. And so at first, um, when you realize that the the button pressure switch thing is like the deal. Haiji tells Toko to step on it so that he and Komaru can go forward. And Toko's like really pissed off about that, obviously. And it gets into like a conversation about the kind of women he likes. And he says something along the lines of like, I like them young, as young as possible. Mm. Um, and I know Ken, you told me that the original line was something about like lolly shit. Mm. So yeah. I I don't know why that line is in this game, like either form of it, because it doesn't no. amount to anything. And this is another thing. There's this, and then, like, there's a line of dialogue from Monica later that gave me the exact same fucking issue that I had with On in Persona 5 of, like, it is so fucked up to me to have, like, someone's, you know, sexual abuse be, like, a major plot point and, like, you know, big arc for them, and mm-hmm. then to later go on and, like, trivialize that, or, like, right. you know, do the same shit with other characters and act like it's not a big deal. Um, Because right. when Haiji first said it, I was like, okay, is he gonna be, like, are we gonna, are they gonna reveal that he was one of the people who hurt Ko- Kotoko, maybe? Like, something like that? Are we gonna find out, you know, just anything. And it's just completely a throwaway line. Yeah. Like, they do kind of reveal that Haiji's a piece of shit, but it's not because of that. Right. Which they should, because he's a fucking creep. Yeah. And again, it just felt really, really tone deaf in a game where you literally have a child who has been being abused by adults in that way. Right. Um. What the fuck? Yeah. I, like, I have, there's, I don't even have anything else to say on it. It's, just, it's like, a, a useless line in a character that like you at this point hadn't really done much to characterize beyond besides he's like a coward he like, yeah that he's a coward and he doesn't like the future foundation like that's about all we know about him at this point 
yeah, I would say that we know that he's like part of the uh, sort of uh, the family that has basically controls the city. But uh, and it's also like in the midst of um, we're basically learning through environmental storytelling of this place that we're going through that is clearly making monokumas that this might be ground zero for where the monokuma outbreak into a city happens. Yeah, it's while you're going through the multiple levels of the factory after the fucking terrible hygiene you keep seeing like pieces of monokumas around and then oh also the part with the lasers fucking sucks mm. i like there's a part there's like two floors where there's a big machine in the middle of the room that has security lasers spinning around and if they hit you like an alarm monokuma comes out and a bunch of other ones show up and you have to shoot the alarm monokuma to make them all go away um and I had to do that shit, like, six or seven times. Because, like, I would think that I was all the way behind a place that I yep. could hide. But apparently not. Yeah, like, it must have been, like, a, I had that, the same thing happen. Like, I must have been, like, a pixel or something off. Because it was, I am, like, clearly behind the thing if you actually look at, like, what's on screen. But then, yeah, the lasers hit me, apparently. Yeah, that shit sucks. Um, yeah. truly. And then it's annoying because Haiji and Toko will both, like, yell at you about it. And it's like... It's like, it's not my fault. Yeah, it's like, I'm, it's, I'm not doing this. I swear I was behind that wall. <laughs> um, But anyway, after you do just... That was, like, honestly the most tedious part of the game to me. I was like, fuck this. Because mm. um, it's not that hard to shoot the alarm monokuma, but it just gets fucking annoying because there's a cutscene every time it happens. And then Toko yeah. and Haiji bitch at you about it. Um, but once you get through all that, you finally get down to the basement and you find out that the trump card that Haiji has been talking about is the fucking. is a giant monokuma dressed like a king. Like it has like a crown and it has a scepter. But it's called Big Bang Monokuma. I don't know why it's not like an astronaut. No. Um, but yeah, and so Haiji tells you that they built this Monokuma and the other... Haiji basically like, Toko and Komaru are like, why the fuck are you guys building Monokumas here? And Haiji's like, I don't know. I wasn't involved with the company with during that time. Like, I didn't do it. And you're like, what? Mm-hmm. Um, which is then weird because apparently the giant Monokuma can only be controlled by Haiji or his dad. Um, yeah. So put a pin in all of that because it's going to be relevant in a little bit. Uh, but basically the the plan now is that Haiji is going to use his Evangelion Monokuma to <laughs> <laughs> get in the Monokuma Haiji. Um, Fucking, he's gonna do that and attack Toa Hills, which is the, like, office building slash apartments that the kids are based in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, he's gonna kill all the kids, I guess. <laughs> and then... Yeah. It, it starts to bring up the moral dilemma of actually, like... Yeah. Hurting the children, and, the Monokuma And kids. so then, and, on top of that, too, I believe it's Shirakuma who tells them, like, hey, the only way to actually stop the Monokumas is to, like, get 
the control device and destroy it. Right. Otherwise, like, it's just going to keep going forever. Um, so they decide to use Haiji attacking as kind of, like, a distraction so that Toa, or Toka, Toko, Jesus Christ, Togo and Komaru <laughs> can get into Toa Hills uh, and steal the controller uh, from Monica. And also, like, get the key to Byakuya's room. It basically becomes down to, like, they're like, yeah, we just gotta go talk to Monica, is essentially yeah. the thing. Um, so they... Oh, that's right. Chapter 6 starts to... Or not chapter 6, chapter 5. Jesus Christ, my brain just, like, shut down for a second there. Oh, well, we also did fight Nagisa Na- Na- yes. down there in the room with Big Bang. I don't know, my brain... Which my, was... I truly just, like, black screened for a second. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> Which was actually like a pretty cool boss fight, com- comparatively speaking. Because I mean they're all I mean, they're all fine mostly. Um the ones we did before this, but it's just kind of like use the bullet that you've got in this chapter to get their weakness where Nagisa's uh mech has kind of like more behaviors and it's not in the same sort of uh arena setup that the other ones were. And it you know, it's just a more dynamic fight, I think. Yeah. Especially, like, even more so than uh, the one that we're going to get to later, which was just kind of, like, yeah, big enemy. I fight. don't like the next boss fight. But yeah. um, it's also, it's another thing where, like, we see the kids, like, you know, baggage coming out through their boss fight. Because, like, yeah, Nagisa basically only understands, like, the world through the lens of people expecting shit of him. And so mm. he wants, like, more and more and more of that. Uh... And that's pretty much what he's screaming through the whole fight. And then Haiji makes a really shitty joke after you beat him, where he's like, oh, I guess he wasn't expecting that. Mm. And then Toko and Komaro just, like, look at him, and he's like, sorry, that wasn't funny. And it's like, yeah, it wasn't, Haiji. Yeah. And, like, they're... I I think for the... For what it's worth, I think that it's starting to get in line with the character that the the role that Haiji plays in like the ethical dilemma mm-hmm. of this is that he no longer views these children as children. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, so. I just hate him. He sucks. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so we have the trump card. We've defeated Nagisa. So yeah, it's time to time to go deal with night or er, Monica. But meanwhile, chapter five starts out with. Uh, Nagito showing up again to talk to Monica. Uh, and even though they're like basically not really working together anymore, um, because Monica has her own plan beyond like what Nagito has been helping her with, uh, he does let her know that a lone visitor has entered the city, but no one has really like been able to tell who they are like monica asks if it's future foundation and nagito's like i don't know Mm. um and then he's like i'm gonna dip and uh they just kind of but not before he gives he he gives a spiel about like hope is going to win yeah and monica's kind of like that's kind of bullshit because like you pretty much only have been helping despair here yeah and then there's that like one like poignant moment where she, she, like, wonders aloud, like, if this is what he's always like, or if it was Junko's influence, and he just, it was one of those things where, like, they don't communicate something through a word, they just, like, put the sprite up, and it's, like, you know, no actual dialogue with it, and it's just like, that, that speaks volumes to me. Yeah. What do you think, Ken? Do you think Nagito was always like this? 
Well, based on what I've seen of him before and after all of the above. Yeah, yeah me too. I think, is, I think it's his personality. Yeah, I think I think Nagito is like that in the same way that Junko is like that. Yeah. And I, 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 like, I mean, this is kind of like the point where we can uh, talk a bit about like the idea that this game could... Because I think there was... I don't remember where I read it, but I remember the original idea for this game was that it was going to be about Ultimate Despair. And when it ended up not being that, I feel like Nagito is kind of like... I feel like Danganronpa as a franchise, I think it does a lot with not expressly showing things to you and like allows you to like, you know, fill in the blanks yourself, whether it be I, I guess like what you think those characters were probably like in that state, where I think Nagito was probably the one that they can put in this game and he can just be who we've always seen him to be and that be both in line with everything that we know about who he is in this moment and just not really showing, like the, the series not really showing its hand. Mm. Um, which is something that I actually, like, in general, um, do respect about Danganronpa, is that, like, there are a lot of opportunities for the series to just, like, really, like, go hard on the fan service of shit and, like, let fans see literally every, like, possible nook and cranny of this narrative, um, where it just always looks to not do that instead. And I think if, even though I think this game probably, like, like I said at the very beginning, like, I'm not really a fan of, Ultra Spirit Girls in the same way I w- was, because it just kind of, like, has become this, like, very distinct side story instead of this, um, but, like, that does expand on the world in a way that's meaningful, but just was not building to something in the way I wanted it to. Um, I do really appreciate Nagito's appearance in this game, just because I feel like he fits in, like, he slots in nicely without ever having to, like, step on the toes of that same ambiguity that I think the series tends to thrive in. Yeah, especially because, like, thinking about all of the Ultra Despairs, right, like, Nagito is the only one it really makes sense for to, like, you, do you know what I mean? Like, being one who's, like, operating independently without Junko. Right. But is still kind of involved yeah, in her like, shit. Like, that's Nagito. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, you know, with a lot of those characters were doing things that involved their talent, so, like, they are probably more involved, like, in... I hesitate to say, like, involved in, like, industry-level stuff, but, like, Nagito is just, like, a dude who is lucky, who also has, like, a very specific set of principles and ideals, and is just kind of been more of a trickster character, as opposed to somebody that has, like, a thing that they do that they are now weaponizing on the world. Yeah, and especially because, like, um... His antagonism towards Junko, or, like, his allegiance slash separation from her has kind of been a key part of his character throughout. Mm-hmm. So I think it makes sense yeah. to see him, you know, in a world where Junko is dead, but people are still trying to do her shit. Um, right. To see him being, like, a key player in that. Especially with, like, Komaru's mm-hmm. connections to Makoto as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And... And then, so he dips the fuck out. And then we go back to uh, Komaru and Toko. And they are making their way through Toa Hills. And uh, you gotta do a lot of Monoku Man in this section. Mm. Which Mm -hmm. is a little arcade machine camera thing that shows you how to get past the level. Um, And you can, like, these are the levels that Ken was talking about earlier where, like, they say, like, oh, you know, like, kill all of the Monokumas, like, by electrifying them or whatever. 
Um, and you can get past these sections without doing it the way that it wants you to. Uh, but it is easier to do it the way that it wants you to. Yeah. Cause then you, then you don't necessarily have to have a fight. You can mm-hmm. just, you know, take them all out in one fell swoop. Yeah. It's a little wonky though. Like there were some times where like I cleared the room the way it wanted me to, but it like didn't trigger the like, congratulations. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I even had some stuff like that too. It was like, I don't know what I did wrong. I thought I like, you gave me all the clues and I thought I killed them all with one shot. Yeah. Here we it's are. It's a little wonky, but anyway, so you have to do like two floors worth of that because basically like all of the kids who have been defeated to this point's robots are guarding the doors that you need to get through to get up to Monica. Um, and so you have to go through each kid's room to find their controller and move the robot. And this is kind of where we get more of the context for all of the kids, but especially uh, Masaru and Jotaro. Um, Mm -hmm. Because you find, like, if you look around, you'll find all of the kids' diaries, and they all kind of talk about, you know, the shit that's going on with them. And Masaru's is really sad because, like, he, like, apologizes for not buying alcohol, knowing how to buy alcohol right, which is sad because he's, like, mm-hmm. what, like, nine? Something like that, yeah. And then, like, he talk even despite the fact that he's talking about his dad hitting him and all this stuff, he's still saying, like, don't leave me, don't stop being my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very sad. And then yeah. J- Jotaro's is kind of similar where he, like, I guess his mom, like, just kind of constantly tells him that she hates him and that, like, she doesn't want people mm-hmm. to see him. Uh, right. We don't really get much context on that other than that, like, his mom is just having bad times with that, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like, and he kind of implies that, like, when he seems to enjoy being hated, he basically says that, like, he'll take that because it is something that is being given to him by his mother. Like, so he feels like it, almost like it's better to feel hated than to feel nothing. Yeah, and he also, like, he basically phrases, like, since his mom hates him so much, if he learns to, like, enjoy being hated, then he can stay with his mom. Yeah. Uh, It's, like, there's also another thing that we got to touch on with the diaries that we'll get to in a second, but, like, that's where I'm talking about, like, it feels like there is, like, a general inconsistency with what this game wants us to feel about these kids' lives. Like, maybe, like, like, even... Like, as we've been talking, I guess it kind of clears it up more. It's just, like, this is the... Them learning to... I guess this is, like, them learning a very specific way that the world can work and just trying to navigate that in whatever way they can. Even it does mean going into, like, survival mode, like, finding joy in being hated or something like that. But, like, it was always weird that, like, I found... You find those... All those diary entries last. Like, they're the last time that you really... That's basically the last word on those kids for this whole game. Because um, they're obviously not here when we go to see Monica. Like, well, the short Kotoko, which we'll get to in a second. But, um. Yeah, because our, our just, girl Kotoko is not done. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, she has made her way up here, too. Um. And it's just like, I. I guess, like, and Justin is talking, it's like, it maybe it's not as confused as it maybe felt to me in the moment, just because, like, it is them trying, just these kids just trying to get by in, like, the framework that they know yeah and the, this this game is like very much a study and like really toxic coping mechanisms yeah um and then you know like what if you took those and killed people right uh which is uh problematic to say the least mm. but 
I don't know. I really wish that there was, like, a bridge between, like, what this is and what it could have been. Because, like, again, there's nothing wrong with talking about this stuff. It's just, like, the way they do it tends to be clumsy at best a lot of the times. Clumsy and inconsistent, I think, is its problem. Is that it just... Yeah, and, like, clumsy tends to be, like, the more favorable, because a lot of it is just straight up, like, they do it badly. Right. That's that's true. Uh, particularly, yeah. I'm going to say the Cote Costa. Yeah. It's done pretty bad. A lot of it. That's for sure. Which we already talked about that. But, yeah, and it's, you kind of get, like, the core of all of these kids is that despite all the shit that has happened to them with their parents, that their parents have directly, like, you know, put on them, they still really love their parents and still, like, want to be in their lives. Mm. Like, Kotoko's whole journal entry is basically the fact that, like, she doesn't want to be a star. She doesn't want to be an actress. She just wants to be normal, but her mom really wants her to do it. And whenever she says that Mm. she doesn't want to do it, her mom cries. And so she literally says, like, I would rather deal with these old men doing what they do to me than watch my mom cry yeah which is a lot but like yeah you know if you are someone who has a complicated relationship with your family like i think you can there's like you know some familiar beats in a lot of these stories mm-hmm. as far as you know where the kids are at with their parents um because even nagisa says something along that line too of like you know even though they were doing all this horrible shit to me like i still love my dad i still you know, want to make him proud of me. Yeah, I, I guess if nothing else, like, the more I'm thinking on this, like, though th- that might have been their, I guess their mindsets, like, when this was all happening to them, maybe it just more speaks to Monica and Junko's influence on these kids, and that they were, like, the thing that pushed them to, I guess, you know, the way that they were. Yeah, like, well, because, I mean, that, it is supported in the fact that, like, originally these kids were going to kill themselves. They weren't right. going to hurt anybody else. They weren't going to, you know, kill their parents. They were just going to end their own lives. And then mm-hmm. Junko showed up. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. that'll get complicated in a moment, but we'll get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So along the way, while you're, while you're doing all of these puzzles and whatnot, you do encounter, you go through this like very scary, um, labyrinth um Mm. it's not really like a maze though because like they leave you a very blatant trail um which are the dentures that kotoko shoots from her teeth Mm. gun uh because we didn't mention it but in her fight before you fight her robot you she has a gun that shoots dentures because her dad was a dentist and she's just like i just thought it was fun yeah i just it was what was around so i made it with (laughs) What I had yeah, on. She was like, that's what I had. And I think pink is pretty fun. So <laughs> also like when the teeth bite you, they like I think give you like some kind of like drug that like kind of like makes you what is it like stun? Yeah, because like when she because when she shot Kamaru, yeah. that was what happened to her. So then like it's like whatever the fuck dentists use to like put people. Yeah. Like, laughing gas. I guess. I don't know. Um, but so you see a trail of these teeth throughout the, um, maze, and you also see, like, a bunch of dead monokumas and a bunch of, like, claw marks and blood everywhere. Mm. Um, and there's also, like, monokuma kids just kind of, like, vibing in here for some reason. Mm. Um, and so 
you follow the trail of teeth until eventually you find Monica or not Monica, uh, Kotoko being um being attacked by <laughs> uh beast Monokumas. And this is another section where it sucks because like she while you're you have to do another section where like you have to find a kid who's singing to mm-hmm. stop the beast Monokuma. And like the whole time Kotoko is like making all these comments about how she's like gonna be humiliated by bears and stuff. Mm. Like implying that they're gonna like you know do sexual things with her right. as opposed to just eating her, um, yeah, and it's and it's weird. And on the one hand, I kind of get the idea of like, well, if you know you're a child who's been made a sexual object, like that's probably the only way you relate to the world. But also, like I don't know, some of the language and stuff just feels like adults doing weird fucked up shit and like kind of making it into a yeah. joke. Rather than like you know a child who doesn't understand any other way to connect. Yeah. But anyway, you save Kotoko, even though Toko's kind of like, "Are you sure? <laughs> Are you sure we should do this?" Um. But Komaru is very staunch in the fact that she's not gonna let you know anybody just die on her watch. Uh. So you so you mm. save Kotoko, and then she kind of tells you like, "Don't destroy the Monokuma controller. Give it to me." I don't hate adults anymore. Like, it'll be fine. And... <laughs> Word, And okay. Toko's like, okay. <laughs> like, Toko literally says something along that line because, like... Oh, because Kotoko also gets into the fact that she, like, is fucking furious with Monica because she heard what Monica told Nagisa. Yeah. Uh, and so she hates Monica now. And so then she she does this thing... Contis- like, most of the scenes that she's in, she does this thing where she'll say one thing and then be like, well, that was an act, because I'm an actress, but that doesn't matter. Right. And so then, when she says that she doesn't hate adults anymore, Togo's basically like, you're not that good of an actress. <laughs> um, yeah, at this point, Togo's basically like the person that's seen through everything, because she's been through this shit before. Yeah, Togo um, is the we'd... person who, through this whole game, who's like, this has bad vibes. Yeah, we actually did skip over something that was in the, one of the, uh, the diary entries, that, um... Sounds like the Monokuma kids have been brainwashed oh, yeah, by the helmets. helmets. Yeah, and they can't control what they're doing. Put a pin in that. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, so then, after finding Kotoko, she kind of runs off again into the... Into the... <laughs> the Toa Hills. Into the abyss. Yeah, she just kind of dips for a while. We'll see her again, but she's, like, there's, it's so funny. There's, like, no talk of, like, teaming up. There's no talk of, like, trying to go together. Kotoko's truly just, like, all right, bye. And she doesn't (laughs) even have her gun anymore. Um, but, yeah, she just disappears for now. Um, and so then you get to, like, the next area and fucking Haiji just, like, shows up out of nowhere and scares the shit out of you. Um, especially because he shows up right when Toko's talking shit about him. Um, <laughs> and it is kind of weird because they're like, aren't you supposed to be like driving the Monokuma mech? Like, what are you doing here? And it's weird. Haiji basically just like, I came here to look for the Monokuma controllers too. Mm, I actually don't remember what his explanation Yeah, I think he says like, I also came to help like look for the Monokuma controller. Mm. And you're like, all right. That's weird. But so then there's an elevator that you can't open. 
And it turns out, Hygie basically explains to you that it's a retinal lock that can only be opened by, like, the correct person's eyeballs. That person is his dad, who he watched be murdered by the children. But, conveniently, he was murdered on this floor, and his office is just down the hallway. So he sends Toko and Komaru to go retrieve his father's corpse to open this door. And when Toko is like, why aren't you coming with us? He says, he cryptically says, if she's going to be making, if she's going to try to make me play these sick little games, I'm just not going to do it or something like that. Mm, Something along that line. And so Toko and Komaru are like, okay. And uh, they go to the office. And um, Toko basically can't do it because of her whole blood thing. And so Kamaru, which she the, the moment where she freaks out was actually very funny to me though, because she just like screams like bloody murder. It's blood. Yeah, which is funny because like you know going in that it's gonna be bloody. Um, and she's like, oh, I don't, I don't know what I was expecting. And so then Komaru has to be the one to like get the body, and I don't know if the implication is supposed to be that she scoops the corpse's eyes out or if she cuts its head off. I think it's that she cuts the head off. Yeah, that was always my understanding. Because she has a big bag. Yeah, and she's she's holding it with like heft. Yeah, like, this is not something that small as my Yeah, so she takes she takes this man's head, and we don't know how she does it, but she cuts his head off and puts it in a bag, and then they bring it back and unlock the door, and then uh, Toa or Togo's like, okay, throw that, throw the, throw it away. And Komaru's like, no, I can't. I'll get possessed by, or I'll get cursed by a ghost. <laughs> and Togo's like, that's dumb. You're dumb. And then Komaru proceeds to be possessed by a ghost. I hate this fucking <laughs> I just, like, I don't even remember that much of it. I just was, like, kind of processing the background information. Because uh, it's a really chaotic scene, right? Because, like, yeah. so the ghost of Haiji's dad possesses Komaru. And like is talking to Komaru in Komaru's voice kind of while Toko is just like screaming because to- yeah it's because like, to- it's like a very con- cuz like oh cuz like, like Toko like- thinks that Komaru is like hallucinating she doesn't believe that she's possessed by a ghost so she's just like yelling at Komaru to like get it together while this man is like unloading the Toa family trauma onto Komaru <laughs> It's just like a lot is happening at once. Yeah, just like it's a very convenient info dump about like, okay, so Monica, like for for context, Monica is the only one of the Warriors that has not had a last name this whole game. Um, turns out she is Monica Toa, and she is the bastard child of Haiji's father. And basically, she was the one that convinced Toa to start creating the Monokumas that are terrorizing the city because they were originally supposed to have been like domestic helpers, I guess is the best way to put it. And, uh, yeah, so she, we're going to get more exposition on this later, but like she killed him. That's why he's fucking dead. And he said that with all the influence of some woman, um, I hate this fucking scene because why the fuck is a ghost in Danganronpa? I don't know. It like I, make sense. like I, the the this game 
gets like just on the borders of like the way that this game or the series has been like establishing its world, and now we're going to like this could have been a fucking letter we picked up or some shit. Like th- there could have been some other way for them to do this, but then like it's it's like played up as a gag, but it like we've it's it's good information. It's like it's what happens. Like she's not hallucinating. She's not like what and and then there's a point where Toko like is like the power of Christ compels you and. Sends him away. So there was also an exorcism in Danganronpa. Yeah, Toko does exercise. Yeah, I don't know. It's super weird. I feel like they could have just done it in, like, a codex entry or something. But I guess it was so, like, you couldn't miss the info dump. I guess. It also does, like, do a lot to, like, characterize Haiji and his dad as assholes. Uh, Because, like, the whole thing is, like, Mr. Toa, like, had Monica with a mistress. And then, like the mistress left her with him and he was like well what the fuck and he's like she should be grateful that i raised her and it's like and komaro's like aren't dads supposed to take care of their kids and he literally says something along the lines of like if i had known that the mother was going to abandon her Mm. responsibilities i wouldn't have tolerated the pregnancy um so not a great dude Mm. uh as as we love to say on this show, put a pin in that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so once once Toko exercises Komaru, they fucking go up to the tower, and then they oh also while they're here, you also find a room that has a bunch of like torture devices and shit in it, and is like covered in blood. And Haiji tells them. That this is where all of the families of the adults were taken to be tortured. And Toko's like, that's weird. How did they, like, specifically know who to take? Which, again, Toko is, like, piecing it all Yeah, Toko is, Toko has her, like, her her Charlie Day board in the background. And is just like, hmm. (laughs) Fucking thinking emoji. She's collecting truth (laughs) bullets. She really is. Yeah, so as you you go up the elevator and then you have to go through like this very creepy series of hallways and you find a room um, off to the side that's up a ladder uh, that is covered in pictures of Junko and which is mine. I'm sorry. I don't know how they got (laughs) to my house. Stop. Um, (laughs) Eventually, like Komaru realizes it's Monica's room because there's a picture of her with Junko. Mm -hmm. Um. And that sure is strange. But anyway, yep. put a pin in that too. Yep. Um, so you leave Monica's room. And then uh, you go into the uh, like main headquarter room, basically. And, you know, you're obviously expecting Monica to be there. And... She's not. It's Kurakuma instead. And he's like, yeah, she got really tired from being, you know, an evil little mastermind. Uh, (laughs) So she's sleeping. And basically he tells you, like, if if you want the story to progress, you have to wake her up because otherwise she'll just sleep forever. Um, And there are three different doors uh, on three different floors in the room. And they're like, okay, well, which one would be her room? And then Komaru's like, well, it's not a matter of, like, which one would she choose? It's a matter of which one could she access? 
Uh, and so then I don't, does it matter? Do you have to pick the right door? I just was right on my first you, try, so I wasn't sure. You have, if you pick the wrong one, you get a game over. Okay. So the yeah. correct room is the top room. Which is only accessible by a letter. Mm-hmm. Which is weird considering, uh, Monica can't walk or use her legs. Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. In theory. But yeah, so you open the door. And she comes out, and uh, you come to find out that Monica can walk. Yeah, and surprises even Kurakuma, which I thought was interesting, considering. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think makes sense later once she elaborates on it a little bit more. Right. But, yeah, she uh, she can walk. And so then you do a boss fight with her, where she and Kurakuma pilot, like, a robot that is basically, like, a zord of all of the other robots mm. and uh it, it's kind of an annoying fight you have to shoot a bunch of little weak spots um yeah. and then once you finally fucking finish it you get the controller the monokuma controller and monica starts being really weird about it yeah because obviously your intention is to destroy it she keeps going back and forth about whether or not she wants you to break it and then Haiji right. shows up and he starts screaming like a maniac at you to break it. Um, Kotoko shows up and doesn't want you to break it because she too has found out about the brainwashing. And originally she says, like, if you break the controller, then we're not going to have any friends anymore. And yeah. which is a very like childlike yeah. vision to have. The situation. Yeah. And then <laughs> Toko and Kumar are like, they're brainwashed. They're not your friends. Um, right. but anyway, it, it truly, the next, like, the whole section of this game is just, do you smash the controller? Um, and mm. it's just, like, a bunch of, like, weird scenes of the different people trying to convince you one way or the other, uh, to smash it or not. And Haiji obviously really right. wants to. Um, and both Komaru and Toko are kind of like, what the fuck, like, this is really right. weird. And so the pull thing is if you push if you do break the controller at any point you get a game over. Um so you have to keep saying no and saying no and saying no until finally you get Monica to reveal that the reason that she wants you to destroy the controller is because the helmets being worn by the Monokuma kids uh if the power source goes out they will explode. So then the streets of Toa City will be covered in headless children that uh, then when the future foundation shows up, they would immediately try to squash Toa because of what happened. And it would result in a war that would eventually go global because of the remnants of despair around the world that are, you know, hanging out that would mm-hmm. show up. She more she more or less wants to, like, start like a second wave of the tragedy. Yeah this way and she figures this is the best way to do it especially because if komaru is the one who does it uh she is obviously makoto's little sister and so she would come the new uh successor to junko is what monica thinks at least like symbolically if not like actually oh you also find out that monica did not intend to kill herself when the other kids were going to kill themselves uh and this is also where she reveals that she faked being uh disabled to get pity uh, mm. because she thinks that pitiful kids are the most powerful and she 
also has a line where she says that like she even got her brother and father to think that it was their fault so it sounds like they Mm. did like try to hurt her and she then made it seem worse than what it was Mm -hmm. also Haiji has a moment of basically like Haiji really loses his shit he calls Monica a bitch like a ton of times and it's like I get that Mm -hmm. you know she's evil but also like she's a child like again like you get the sense that he just does not even yeah he does not like you truly see that he like any of the kids because it's not even just her like when you find out the monokuma kid thing he just doesn't care he's like fuck these kids they've done this and then when Mm. you're like they were brainwashed he just like doesn't care um which is i think like well let's finish going through like the actual plot points because i think like this sort of like way that it's framing the hope despair uh, conflict is kind of fascinating, but let's let's finish all the ex- the exposition. Yeah. First. Um. We also find out that like she Monica met Junko and was you know like dazzled by her in the same way that a lot of people are. Um. And then you know things kind of spiraled out from there, and we also find out that uh. Monica's actual ability is that she's like a genius and she's really good at robotics Mm. and she was actually running the Toa group's robotics section um, as a fucking child and uh, because of the fact that her stuff was constantly making them money even though her brother and dad didn't like her they basically let her do whatever she wanted Right. uh, which is how she started making Monokumas and so, uh, she basically, like, convinces her dad that it's a good thing, um, because they're making money off of these Monokumas and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and she also kind of blackmails them because, like, if they stop, she can reveal that Toa was the one making them during right. the, you know, the events of the tragedy and whatnot. Uh, so she kind of has them in a, in a bind there. And then uh, she also reveals that after Junko died, her dad wanted to quit, and she didn't, which is why she killed him. Right. She does say, which this upsets Kotoko very much, that, like, Junko only sought the Warriors of Hope out because she oh, wanted yeah, Monica's they were influence. Like she wanted yeah, Monica. the Mo- Warriors of Hope yeah. were a bonus to having uh, Monica, because Monica, you know, had the connections to the Toa group. Yeah, which... Kodo was like, no, she loved us all the same. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry that you think yeah, that. Yeah, I think um, it's something, Monica literally says something like, love, like, what's that? Like, that didn't have anything to do with this. Right. Yeah, which, I and mean, she even also, like, kind of outwardly acknowledges, like, Junko was using her, like. Yeah. And I think that is something that, like, I guess speaks to Monica, like, is that she was able to see through the shit that almost nobody else does when it comes to Junko, and how she's manipulating. The other kids see it too, though, because there is a line, I can't remember if it's Masaru or Nagisa, one of them says, like, if we're going to be exploited, we would rather it be her. That, yeah, I guess it would have been uh, Nagisa timeline-wise. Yeah. Because um, there was a point where, like, Toko's like, you do realize she was just using you, right? Yeah. And, yeah, and they, he says something along the lines of, like, if we're going, like, we're already being exploited by people, we would rather it be her. Um. Mm-hmm. And so, like, they see it that way, but then it turns out it's even, you know, more insidious in the fact that, like, they were bonus prizes to Junko. Yeah, it's, uh, sad. Yeah. 
So I guess like before we get into the final thing that Monica used to like kind of push Kamaru, I guess this is like so the interesting thing about this game I think is that it is like if you put it like, I guess side by side with Danganronpa three in terms of like their take on hope and despair. Danganronpa three is the which we'll get to obviously in another episode. Um, is kind of about the fact that like despair has to exist for hope to exist, where this game is more about that like too much of hope and if it is pointed in the wrong direction can cause more despair and that is like like Haiji even at one point like in a speech he's given to the resistance is like I was basically just being a coward and like I didn't have any hope for the future until those two pointed at like Kamaru and Toko was like until those two came in and like you know gave me a reason to hope again and he is so uh, emboldened in that that like he doesn't care that these kids are victims of what's going on. He doesn't care about, like, the possible war that's going to come from the Future Foundation if this all happens. And that has always been, like, an interesting thing. At least, like, I don't, like, because how this game ends, it doesn't necessarily get represented in anything, any action that happens or anything, like, because, like, the literal point of the end of this game is that nothing changes, and that it's, like, you know, again, like, something I thought was leading into what would have been Danganronpa 3. But, um, I always just found that sort of take on it interesting because it villainizes hope in a way that nothing else in the franchise does. Yeah. And I think that's also the most like nuanced look at it in the sense of like, yeah, like for hope for Haiji, hope was finding a way to annihilate children. And right. so like you do have to consider like what the fuck does that actually entail? But I think it also kind of between this and like the actual decision that they make at the end, I feel like they kind of try to do the dig and romp two thing, but like not mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. If it, and again, especially knowing, like, what all this leads to, it's just, like, it, it's frustrating to me, because, like, there are all these nuances and this, like, very interesting framing that it is taking, which, you know, even Couple 2, like, you know, it is leaving it on the note that these things are still intermingling in some way, but doesn't actually follow through on it, and, like, it doesn't actually, like, go anywhere, because... Again, I, I, there's part of me that feels like at some point this probably was meant to be like a proper lead into three that it ended up not being. And I think it just maybe some point when as that show was being developed, they just kind of like pivoted and was just like, and I think that just kind of is the feeling I get from the way that these characters show up in that show. Um, and it is it is just like really frustrating to kind of like sit on because like it is proposing this conundrum and is you know, trying to make these granular, really interesting takes of, you know, the the themes that the first game first began, um, and just doesn't really go anywhere with them. And, like, and not, not even in, like, an intentional ambiguity way. Like, it just, it just, they, they just pour it out and put something else in the cup. Yeah, which is, like, I mean, so I guess we can kind of get into the ending now, because, like, what, I feel about this I think is kind of tied to that too um because you are presented over and over again with these kind of two choices of either destroy the remote or don't and you have to do it I think you have to do it like 10 times it's a lot it's very many times oh uh, because like I mean I, I will say like the I've kind of come around on that because I feel like they are trying to present what is basically a final class trial mm-hmm. of one of these games. And, like, if we just let you just sit through it, that is, like, not really taking advantage of the fact that this is a video game. 
Um, yeah. So that like we want to have like some interactive. Element I wish it in. had been cut down because there was a point where I was like, is, "When is it gonna stop?" Mm-hmm. Um. But eventually, after like getting into um, just doing this over and over and over again, they basically decide like, and Komaru specifically kind of decides like that she's gonna not do either. That she wants to find a way to save the children and the adults in this town. Right. Which actually, before we even get to that, there was one more thing that Monica wanted to do to like push her to to do it. Which is she brings a monitor that appears to show her parents in that torture chamber. Oh yeah. Um which does make like Kamaro does start to like the switch has flipped and she is about to break it just because like she wants to be like done with all of this. And then we briefly switch over to Toko, who like tackles her and get, gets the remote, and then there's like a a fight between her and Haiji and Kotoko, and then Monica's like, okay, Toko, the reason that I like wanted you to be the person to guide Kamaro is because I was under the impression that you weren't gonna get involved. You were the type of person to, to not care. never really yet to never get you know, be ambivalent to all of this. So what if I give you the key to Byakuya's room? Would that be enough? Would that be a thing? And then Toko, in like, you know, after all that she's done, she's like, no, I'm going to take them both. You're not going to, like, take the two people that mean the most to me uh, like this. This is not what I'm going to allow you to do. Um, and then the Big Bang Monokuma starts to move on its yeah, own. Yeah, and they specifically say, like, how is it moving? Like, Haiji is the one who's like, how is that moving? I'm not moving it. And my dad is literally dead. Yeah. Which, uh, we'll see in a second. Um, yeah, so you have to fight the Big Bang Monokuma. And... But it's, a, it's a pretty cool fight. Like, I mean, it's not, like, complicated, but it's, yeah. like, the scale of it is fun mm-hmm. for me. It's a little tricky, too, because you can't, like... You you have to use Toko in specific sections. Um, yeah. And you can't... Like, you have to use both of them in this fight. Um, mm-hmm. Which is not true arguably any of the other fights um and then so after you beat the big bang monokuma um it kind of ends up like destroying a lot of the building and uh yeah monica gets crushed under some rubble uh which i feel like they were trying to do like some edgy poetic justice thing of like her pretending that her legs didn't work so then they crushed them Mm. um yeah it felt kind of like a monokuma punishment to a degree uh, mm. but Monica is trapped under this rubble, and she basically tells Komaru, like, nothing has changed, like, you didn't do anything here, like, the the right. adults are furious that you destroyed the Big Bang Monokuma, and the kids are still under mind control, like, there's nothing, like, you didn't do anything. And Komaru right. is so pissed off, and she's just like, give me the key to Byakuya's room, uh, mm. and Monica does, and then she and Toko leave. Um, well, there's before even before they leave, Monica does have a line of like, I guess neither of us could like live up to oh, Junko and Makoto. Yeah, and, she's like, I wanted to be and, like big big sis Junko, and you wanted to be like your brother, and neither of us could do it. And Komaru is basically like, I'm me. Like I didn't want to be Makoto. Right. Like y'all were pushing that narrative on to me. Yeah, which is uh, it, it, I do like that at least because like this has been a game that is primarily not about. The like you know the students of Hope Speak Academy like this is about like the normal people caught up in it and I think that is and again like an interesting take on a lot of the stuff um 
one thing we actually did gloss over before we get to what what happens with, with Haiji and Kotoko is um when you beat Big Bang Monokuma, two things happen that are important. Um, one is that we do this whole like truth bullet shit. Uh, it gets like this this fucking anime cutscene where Kamaru and Toko fly up in the air and shit. And one thing that I like is important is that like Toko says like she's finally found her own hope, mm-hmm. and that is in having like friendship and and being able to make that her is, own friends on her own. Right. And that was something that I've also th- always thought about, at least in the very end of Danganronpa 1, when, you know, the, like, Makoto is infecting everyone with their hope, and they're all having, like, this monologue to themselves. It was always significant to me that that was Jill, who was in control at that point, mm-hmm. and that Toko never had that same moment that everybody else does. So, like, I always was like, I, I, it got to me when she's like, I finally have my own hope. Like, I'm finally able to, like, have that same sort of, like, turn that everyone else had in that moment and that was very good yeah i also Um, liked it because she found it herself because that's also a key thing mm -hmm. is like there are scenes a couple scenes but one specifically where like komaru and toko fight because komaru's like like toko's like you have to fight like you can't run away from Mm -hmm. this like you have to fight and we do find out like yeah her motivation there is kind of selfish because she doesn't want her to run away and leave piyakia but like, Kumara makes a comment about, like, I'm just a normal girl, like, you don't get it, you went to Hope's Peak, you were chosen by the Future Cat, like, the mm-hmm. Future Foundation, like, you know, you're special, and Toko's like, don't act like I was just chosen for this, like, I went through so much shit, like, and, like, just being talented doesn't mean anything, like, you know, mm-hmm. like, she has this whole, right. and, like, that's her whole thing kind of throughout, and, like, why she hates Haiji so much is because, like, he won't do anything. Um, mm-hmm. and so it, yeah, it kind of circles back to, like, Toko is able to find her own hope without Byakuya, without Makoto, and, like, kind mm-hmm. of even without Komaru, like, she is the one who does it, and it's because, like, she right. is, you know, becoming this person, which I thought was cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I, it, I don't know a lot of people that finish that first game and give a shit about Toko, but I, again, like, I think she is a fucking standout in this game. Like, for all the things that this game fucks up, Toko, I am so, I am proud of that bitch. I am so proud of her. I am too. Although, also, I will say, we didn't mention this, but at the end of every chapter, you get, like, a weird Toko fantasy scene. Oh, right, I completely forgot about that. Where is getting, like, beaten up and then, like, says something, you know, condescending to you um right i think it's actually based on the the score you yeah. get for that chapter yeah which is kind of funny it's kind of but then she also has like these it's she also has those fantasies like where they're like making out and yeah like, and like he's being very degrading and also like they have and, like those scenes also end with like stuff that looks like fucking cum splatters everywhere so like mm-hmm. it's a lot it's really aggressively yeah. a lot um but anyway uh so yeah they... Yeah, and it's also the last thing with the Big, Bono, Big Bang Monokuma is, as soon as you kill it, its head explode and Shirakuma's pops out. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot that Shirakuma was in it. Yeah, so Shirakuma was the one that was controlling the Big Bang Monokuma. Bum, bum, um, bum. They really yeah. don't make that a very big reveal, even though it's kind of a huge reveal. <laughs> yeah, it... it the thing that I think about is, like, they do, but, like, not with the characters that you think it would be the reveal. Like, because, like, Kamaru and Toko don't speak of it. No, like, they it's never react something that they, it like, reckon with. Yeah, it's... It does come up in a very substantial way in a minute, but, like, yeah, there's no... 
really may recognize him that like the thing that was ostensibly on our side, although it was a fucking Monokuma, so I don't know why all of you were so quick to mm-hmm. trust it. Was clearly not on our side. Yeah, like I was weirded out that like because like Kamaru gets really attached to Shirakuma, and then just like mm-hmm. does not comment on that, and like Haiji doesn't really comment on it, and Toko doesn't even do like a I fucking told you so. Yeah, it's very weird. Um, but yeah, after that, they get the key, and then while uh. Komaru and Toko are presumably going to get Byakuya. Uh, we stay in this room and kind of see what's going on with Haiji and Kotoko. And Haiji has just, like, shattered. He is just, like, yep. done. Absolutely checked out. He's just, like, like, Monica tries to talk to him and he's just, like, like hope, despair, like, I don't care about any of that anymore. And he just leaves. Um, yeah. And then Kotoko walks by and, you know, Monica tries to, like, puppy dog eyes her into helping her. And Kotoko is basically, like... It's a weird scene, because she basically, like, does that whole I'm just acting thing again. Mm. And But then she tells Monica, like, even though you betrayed us, I still love you. And it would be right. great if you died in a super adorable way. And then she just leaves. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so then... Yeah. Yeah, we kind of end on Toko and Komaru being out in the hallway outside of where Byakuya is being kept, and uh, Komaru wants to stay in mm. Toa City, uh, because after, you know, five chapters of being screamed at, she finally gets that she needs to actually do something. Right. Um, and Toko is not super stoked about that decision. Um, right. And then we we kind of get into our into our epilogue. Oh yeah, well, I, I was about to say what that conversation is in the epilogue with the, re- the rest. Yeah, of it's weird because they like the the, there is more to that conversation, but they just put it in the epilogue. Um, yeah, they truly just like cut to black at like Toko being like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" No. Um, but yeah, so that in the the epilogue is funky. Um. We basically, the first thing you see is Nagito has rescued Monica from the rubble um, and is carrying her on his back because apparently he didn't leave like he said he was gonna. And he kind of tells Monica that, like, the reason he's saving her is because, like, he hates an ending that isn't hope or despair. Um, So he's ostensibly grabbing her to try to push it one way or the other. Yeah. He talks about, like, he wants to make her the successor, not Kamaru. And... Says so like because I'm the person that hates and loves her, loves her more than anyone else. I can more make like you her more like her than was. she even yeah, was. Yeah, it's very creepy. Yeah. Uh, and like Monica even like acknowledges that it's weird because she just calls him fucking gross as they're like walking away. Yeah. Which again, like I, <clears throat> that is the, the thing. Is like I thought that this was like when, when the game came out. I thought it was like okay, we are setting up the final mastermind mm-hmm. for. A third game. I'm not gonna lie. I thought that this ending was like the whole premise of this game. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Like I, I mean, I, as I said before, like I, I think it's its take on the themes is interesting. I think the idea that like the game is about people that weren't ultimates being like sucked into the ultimates drama uh, is interesting. 
And I like the idea of, like, a character trying to, like, be a successor by, like, creating these new symbols of, like, like the quote-unquote siblings of the ultimate hope and the ultimate despair. All these things are so cool. It just doesn't fucking go anywhere. That's why I just, like, I... This game exists in this weird space for me where, like, I dug it a lot when it first came out, and now I'm just kind of like, it's fine. Yeah, like, I think, like, I think I kind of misunderstood when I originally read, like, the wiki stuff. And I mean, like, to be fair, the game does want you to think that Monica is supposed to be the successor for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. But I definitely thought... Like, the, the Kamara thing is like a twist. Yeah. Like, you're like, oh, no, when did I say I yeah. wanted to do that? Yeah, and... she truly does do the moment of, when did I say I wanted to be the successor? It has, like, scary eyes. Right. I think, in my head, I thought this was going to be, like, Monica doing fucked up stuff to become right the successor and to become Junko. And then... To, like, earn the yeah, title. Yeah, like, what I thought was going to happen is, like, what this game ends on. <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of it. We get that ominous uh, ending with those two. And then we go back to... Uh, we we flash to Byakuya and Makoto, uh, and they are video chatting. And Byakuya basically tells Makoto, like, hey, I'm safe, but Toko and Komaru aren't with me. Uh, here's why. And he, like, shows them a video that he recorded on his phone. Which is, like, I don't know why you couldn't just, like, email that to him. Right. But he literally, like, holds his phone up to the webcam. Um, it's very funny. But basically, like, um... It's a video of Komaru explaining why she wants to stay, and we flash back to the conversation, the rest of the conversation that she and Toko had, where she kind of says, like, you know, even though I was scared, and even though, you know, all of this stuff has been wild, like, when I said that I wanted to save the kids and the adults, that is what, like, Mm. that is what made me feel good and what made, like, what gave me courage, so I think that's what I need to do. And Toko is like, okay, well, then I'm going to stay with you um, because, like, we're friends and, mm-hmm. you know, you're important to me. Yeah. And they did have, a, there was actually a very funny line where she's like, and I'm sure that my our, our, my feelings for Byakuya won't change. Oh, yeah. Uh, no matter how far apart we are. And then, like, he's like, you're right. I will still find you. Whatever he fucking said. He said something mean. <laughs> Byakuya is Byakuya to the very end. But he does feel, he does seem a little humbled by the end, which I did appreciate. Yeah, and he basically tells Makoto, like, I will, Makoto says, like, next time something like this happens, I want to be hands-on mm-hmm. with it. And Byakuya is basically right. like, okay, I'll work with you for the time being until I can pay back the debt I owe Toko and your sister for saving him, right. essentially. Which, again, is like, well, and we're about to get to, like, the most direct uh, implication or, like, reference to what is Danganronpa 2. Yeah. Which is, like, what he's talking about. Like, which is why he did what he did in that game. And, mm. yeah. Yeah. And so then we, the final scene of this epilogue is we get, uh, Shirakuma's head and Furukuma's heads are in a wheelbarrow. And they're talking in their voices. And then all of a sudden, they both kind of shift. And it's Junko's voice coming from both of them. Uh, and then we reveal that the person pushing the wheelbarrow is Izuru, which the implication is he is the lone person who entered mm-hmm. the city earlier that Nagito reported. 
And it seems that this was an extension of a Junko plan. And mm. this is kind of where we get the context of, like, this is where Izuru decides basically to say fuck Junko and do his yeah. own thing. Um, we close out on, you know, her talking to him through these heads and him just, like, reaching into them and, like, trying to crush them and rip them apart to make them stop. And then they keep talking. Yeah. And then he takes them for, cause like she, the last thing she says is like, I'm sure next time I see you, you'll be someone else entirely. So like they have to some degree, a plan mm-hmm. for like what they're doing. And cause like she even says uh, that because this all happened, this is probably going to bring quote unquote, those guys that they, that they are going to have an interest in the place, which is again, foundation. probably the rest of yeah, probably, but probably both Future Foundation and the Remnants of Despair, which is, explains why Nagito is staying. Yeah, um, and explains how everybody got together, presumably. Yeah. So, yeah, it is a very, like, Izuru doesn't speak, and but it also, like, I... The, lang- the body language of the scene is very forceful. Like, you get the sense that he fucking hates her. Mm-hmm. And I kind of love it. Just, like, the... Something that I don't, I don't even feel like... I did, like dang it off with three even gets across is that, like like if you read his lines in chapter zero of dang it off with two is that like he's just kind of like so ambivalent to her in a way like which you know, she frames it in the way that she does in dang it off with two as like he's part of you know her group but he just like so clearly just it's like not. has like some level of distaste for her yeah he's just clearly done and like even she comments on like oh you're being so forceful yeah i didn't know you still felt on those emotions and yeah it's a good like it is like you know it's the basis of like a prequel to like have like these really like very specific nods to what's coming next and it is that but it also just like felt like a very strong silent character moment for Izuru yeah to me. I feel and... like it also kind of helps with like we get such brief characterization of him in two that just like this one scene I feel like it's really helpful in kind of like mm-hmm. seeing where he was at yeah. before all of this yeah. started or like before two started yeah and I, I also I mean I, I frankly like that it, the Junko's the mastermind again like that was She's she was the, the one that was yeah and it, it was also like interesting because like I um, I didn't. I don't know if I realized this when the game was when I was playing the game for review. But like when the voice cast started to come out, Shirakuma and Kirakuma are voiced by the two actresses that play her. Oh, that and, makes sense. Yeah, so it was like it, it felt like both of them were very much like two specific personalities of hers that were like just taking it, the form of a Monokuma. And um, you know, one is white, one is black. So you put those together, and that makes Monokuma. And especially because their and, eyes, the. Kurakuma only has the Monokuma eye showing, and Shirakuma only has the regular mm-hmm. eye showing. I think at one point they even said, like, ooh, Black Hope and White Despair. Yeah. In the end, they're both the same. And Good, like, again, like, when the game hits, Ultra Sparrow Girls hits. I just wish it hit more often than it fucking did. Me too. Um, yeah. I think that's it for Ultra Despair Girls, though. Um, yeah. Ken, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at ShepardCDR, and every other week as of this recording, we are in the middle of a Final Fantasy X retrospective over at Normandy FM, which is on Normandy FM show at Twitter, and it's on your various podcast services, and you can also find me all the time over at fanbyte.com, writing whatever I feel like that day. Hell. 
and you can find me on Twitter over at Keeper. And you are listening to this, so you probably know where to find all of our uppercut stuff. Um, but yeah, that's going to do it till next time. Uh, we will see you next time for Danganronpa 3. Whoa, one second. Yeah, we actually, for, I need to, like, I feel like I need to tell people this if they're, like, if there are people that are, say, maybe playing the series along with the mm. show. I feel like I need to describe how to watch Danganronpa oh, 3 Oh, yeah. So, first of all, so Danganronpa 3 run. anime, not V3, not the game. We're not there yet. Yeah. But you do yeah. have so, to alternate. There's a despair arc and a future arc. And you mm-hmm. have to watch, is it despair first, then future? You, you start with future, and then you go to despair, and then back to future, and then back to despair. That was how the show was airing. And that, sh- that you'd think that was a simple concept, but Funimation, where you can stream it, for some reason treats both of those things as two separate TV shows, even though they are literally, like, they are written to be, like, watched alternating. Like, they aired that way, like... I just we'll get more deep into that on that episode because I got I got plenty of fucking rants about how I think Funimation was the worst thing to happen to this fucking franchise. But yeah, if you are gonna watch that show before the before the episode, um, that is the order in which you watch it. You go future despair, future despair, and it all culminates in a finale, which is called Hope. Which for some fucking reason Funimation puts at the end of despair. So yeah, yeah. we'll see y'all then. Bye bye.